All right, yes, sir. We are live. Black African Power was good, was happening, a well organized lie. Defeats a disorganized truth every time. Woo hoo wee. Man, y'all already know what it is, man. It's God killer in the house, man. And it's um and raw squad up. And we come to do what we got to do because we're going to do what we got to do. We're standing tall, we're standing strong. And it's um and raw squad up. What's good, family, man? Look, we're going to do this on the regular, man. Because y'all been running around a little bit extraordinarily crazy. So it's time to bring that real scholarship back into the community. You know what I'm saying? I ain't going to do the howling and screaming. I ain't doing all that. I'm calming down and I'm chilling. Right? So look, we're going strong today. We're going to deal with a little bit of the uh, quote-unquote uh, Egyptian yoga. We're going to deal with uh, all people Africans. That's already always a hotly... Uh, debated topic right there amongst the squad personally, right? So we're going to really, really go get it in. I'm letting y'all know, man, uh, we might step on some toes tonight, but we're not trying to go personal with it. We just want to make the community stronger and constructive proper life, all right? So, you know, we deal with things from a historical perspective. So, you know, I hope y'all don't take this personal because it's not personal. And y'all know what it is, man. So I hope y'all enjoy it. Uh, Brother Ujao. Uh, he gonna start us off with some excellent slides. Uh, you know, the sister Naya, uh, I know she gonna lead the debate on the African thing. She thinks she, she thinks she really got this one, but it's all good, man. It's her time to shine, man. So I just wanna give a shout out to all the members, brother Ben, brother Asar, uh, uh, um, uh, Asar, Ben, Smash. Uh, who else? Who else I'm leaving out? Brother Nahisi. Nahisi. Sanjay. Sinjetti, man, Dr. Oyamaya, man, y'all know what it is. So look, all right, go ahead, go ahead, Wuja, what's good? How you doing today? First of all, how you doing? Sister Naya, voice is on fire. What's Thank up? you, brother. Unc. I'm just, I'm so happy you came in like that because you gave me life, boy. That was an old um, God killer introduction. I'm feeling, right. you got me hyped now. I'm ready. Yeah, all right. Thank you for um, being here, family. We just want to discuss... Um, important topics, engage, build, and hopefully we can get something out of it. So thank you for coming. All right. And I'm going to say, uh, Hotep, peace, Black African power. I'm a Ross squad up. Peace to the family. Uh, we're going to take it light. Um, like Brother Unk said, I'm going to kick it off, um, you know, for the topic. So the topic is going to be dealing with comedic yoga, uh, the benefits of comedic yoga, and our the comedic yoga postures are they historically authentic all right now i want to um kind of prep uh a couple you know say a few disclaimers because this is something that i had did on facebook and i did it with a post and a facebook live video and i understand that it's a sensitive topic because a lot of people in the conscious community uh the yoga space uh practice comedic yoga and there's a lot of benefits that people uh, get from practicing comedic yoga. People have been practicing for years and, and, you, and there's no denial of its uh, effectiveness and the benefits that people uh, receive from it. So when I first did a post about it, 
uh, it was perceived to be an attack on comedic yoga. And that's not my intention at all. I made that clear the first time, the second time, and I'm making it clear tonight that I am not in no way attacking the practice of comedic yoga. In fact, I encourage our people to engage in comedic yoga and find a competent instructor um, and, and uh, sign up and actually uh, put it to practice because it's very beneficial. And I myself uh, will be looking to do that uh, in the very near future uh, as well. So I want to get that um, out the way. Um, now, what I did cover was, were the issue of the comedic yoga postures. Now, there's more to comedic yoga than just the postures. And I understand that. And that was not my focus. And that's not my focus for uh, tonight. So I'm just going to lead the discussion in this. And, um, and I'm going to go straight forward through it. And um, uh, Brother Unk and Sister Naya, if you have any comments while I'm um, going through this, by all means, you can interrupt me uh, because I have a tendency to, to you know, be a little long winded here. So I'll try not to do that. <laughs> try not to do that uh, tonight. But let me let me get through the slides and hopefully people can benefit from what I'm sharing. All right. So the topic is perspective versus perspective and comedic yoga postures. All right. So the first thing that um, I always like to do is to state the, the claim. All right. So this is the claim that I've made on Facebook and uh, I've been consistent with this claim for years. Today's comedic yoga postures are not actual historical postures at all. They are a result of the scribal convention of aspective art in which they expressed multiple angles simultaneously. The general rule, rule was the torso, the shoulders, the single eye, the waist garments, and any headdress or crown was to be carved in frontal view while all else is in profile view. Now this applies to the figures. All right. Objects were the same way, but uh, there were a different set of rules applied to, to different objects. But this is to human figures or figures. All right. So that's the claim. All right. Now, what I would recommend, I'm going to start off with with references. These are two excellent books that I encourage everyone to get um, that covers what I have discussed and been consistently discussing, which is the principle of aspective versus perspective um, perceptual attitudes. All right. So the book on the on the left is Principles of Egyptian Art. The book on the right is Reading Egyptian Art. They're both available on Amazon. I have nothing, no business ties with it. I'm just uh, giving a reference for you all to um, make sure you uh, look up. All right. So to start it off, perspective and perspective. What are they? They are expressions of perceptual attitudes. OK, so I'm going to start off with two working definitions of both of these both of these words so we can synchronize what what I mean all right perspective uh, this is something that, that a lot of us are already used to and we we use this word a lot in general all right perspective describes a viewing as it appears to the viewer who is an arbitrary individual at a random point in time and in a particular spot chosen by him and in whatever lighting there happens to be so this is something that we're used to every day all day OK, this is not something special or something new, um, it, whether you knew what it was called or not is uh, maybe a different story. So here's an example of perspective art. So basically what perspective is saying is that whatever your your angle is, whatever your view, if you're to reproduce what you see, you're going to reproduce it based on your perspective, your angle and where you are 
in, in at, at a point in space and time. So this is an example of this uh, lady is drawing the, the model and she's drawing from her perspective. Now, if there were other artists uh, in a circle around this particular model, they would draw the same model from their perspective. And so their pictures would look different. But from her perspective, this is what it would look like. And this is what it's called perspective. All right. So now we're going to move to aspective. So aspective is something that may be new to a lot of us and that we're not used to. So in normal usage, aspective describes a restricted viewing, a gaze directed at one individual part. When the individual part is separate, separated from its context, it loses its relational values. That is, it simultaneously loses both its relationship with the surroundings and modifications this relationship may produce. In other words, one may say that the individual part regains its own proper form in an aspective view and all the distortions, displacements, and foreshortenings which it would have undergone through its subordination to the whole disappear. So basically what that's saying, that said a lot, but basically it's saying that an aspective view is to look at individual components of what you're looking at and you're taking the most important angles and points of that, that part and you're drawing it as is, irregardless of its relationship to everything else. Okay, and I'm going to show an example that's going to illustrate that if that was confusing. All right. So uh, last paragraph. Um, aspective view means you are showing the most identifiable parts of the subject. The depiction of each part provides the maximum information from different angles. All right. So here's the question that we have to ask when it comes to ancient Kemet and the scribes and what we see uh, as art. So the question is, what was the scribes or artists perceptual attitude to the object being depicted? And the answer is the scribes describe renders what he is depicting part for part as it ideally is always everywhere and for everybody. And as an example, a square surface is shown as an equal right angle quadrilateral. Greek or Western perspective art renders the same original as it appears to the viewer. Depending on where the viewer places himself, the sides are foreshortened, the angles are distorted, and the lines become finer as distance increases. So that's the difference. So aspective, you're going to draw it as is, irregardless of where you are. And perspective, you're going to draw it based on where you are, and de therefore the angles may be different. You have depth, you'll have the foreground, background, etc., etc. All right. So I'm going to illustrate this with some pictures. And the remainder of my slides are going to be pictures and I'm going to give some commentary about each picture. And I'm going to try to get through this brief, but not too fast to where you don't understand. So here is an actual uh, ancient Kemetic or Kemeti um, artifact. This is an ex a perfect example of aspective method. So what you're looking at is uh, you have human figures surrounding a pool of water, a lake. Uh, we see a boat on the lake or, you know, drawn on a lake. We have trees on the outer court, on the outer part. We have a building, an enclosure, a dwelling place over here on the left. We have trees within uh, another section of a courtyard and a little shrubbery around the lake. Now, we know in reality that human beings do not stand on water like this. We know that boats do not sail on water like this. We know that trees do not grow from left to right. We know buildings do not 
uh, are not erected, you know, from left to right. So what, what we're looking at is that we're looking at multiple angles all at once. And that's what aspective method is all about. Multiple angles being simultaneously represented. All right. Here's another one. We have fish in the pond. Now we know fish don't swim with their side fins facing up. We know that they, they, they swim with their top fin would be towards the top of the water. But they're not drawn that way because they're drawn with a distorted angle to show the most information that we could possibly have to be able to identify the object that's being represented. That's what perspective uh, art is about. And that's what we're looking at again. So we see trees growing left and right. We know they don't grow that way. Trees up here. We have a sister sitting here uh, doing something, etc. All right. So just give an example. Now, go to the next. Now, here, here should be um, something that's very, very easy to understand. So here are two figures. On the left, we have Kagimni of, I believe, the fifth dynasty. And we have another figure, Kanum Hotep of the 12th dynasty. And in both instances, Kanum Hotep and Kagimni, they're standing in, this, in the same posture. Oh, they're, they're depicted in the same posture, I should say. Now, what we need to know here is that both of these are a representation of aspective methods. Now, how do we know that? So when we look at Kagimni, we're looking at he's in standing in profile view. He's facing to the left. But if you notice his what would be his right shoulder and then we have over here his left shoulder. We have his right arm attached to his left shoulder. That's backwards. We have his uh, left arm attached to what will be his right shoulder. And that's backwards. This arm right here is his actual, his left arm, and it's holding the staff. This arm here is his right arm, and it's holding the scepter. And the scepter is, angle, is behind him, going behind him in the scene. And then we have his uh, garment where the front of it is facing us at a 90 degree angle towards us and it's in full frontal view. So remember the rules, the, the shoulders and torso, full frontal view, the single eye, full frontal view, the garments, uh, the waist around the garments, full frontal view. Everything else is in profile. Same thing with Kanum Hotep. So I don't have to repeat it, but if you look at Kanum Hotep, the same thing, the, uh, his right arm is on his left shoulder his left arm is on his right shoulder. Now, what's interesting is I'm going to zoom in to Kanum Hotep. So here's a, more, a better close-up shot of Kanum Hotep. Now, let's, let's analyze this a, a bit more. What we're actually looking at is Kanum Hotep's chest and his back at the same time. So over here on the left, we see his chest, his pec, pectoral uh, uh, area. And over here, we don't. This part is his back because this is why we see his right shoulder, his right hand or right arm. What would if he was facing us, it would be his left shoulder, but it's not. It's his right shoulder because this part of his body is his right is his back. This is from the angle of his back. And this side is from the angle of his chest with the arm will be from his back. So we're looking at the chest area and his back. All right. And notice that uh, you can see the right hand, and that will be on his left shoulder. We know that that's humanly impossible. 
Okay, so I just want to make that clear so you can see a close up that this is his left arm, left hand holding the staff. Right arm, okay, right hand. Yes. Ujawu, is this the perspective or the aspective? This is all aspective. Okay. Okay, so the so the the easy thing to remember about the two is that perspective is a single angle from from whatever you're viewing. And an aspective is multiple angles at one time. Okay. So right here, this is multiple angles. We're looking at his back. Uh, you know, the, the arms are reversed. And this is the reason why we see in a lot of uh, comedic um, scenes, people with two left hands. And people always ask, well, why do they have two left hands or two left feet or, or et cetera, et cetera? Because they're, they're operating from uh, multiple angles um, at one time. Okay, so let's continue. Here is Kanum Hotep again. This is the aspective representation of him drawn on a flat surface, as I showed before. On the right-hand side would be Kanum Hotep, how he would stand naturally. So this is how this individual would actually be standing. Not how you see it on the left, but how you see it on the right. This is perspective view, and over on the left is aspective view. Okay, so notice that his right hand that we don't see in the statue, but we we can we know that his uh, right shoulder is over there holding the scepter, and then his left hand, left shoulder, and left arm is holding the staff. That's how this individual will be standing, not like how you see on the left. So the left is not a realistic or naturalistic representation; it is an aspective representation. All right. So here's another example: we have aspective on the left and perspective on the right. So here are cows uh, drawn on a flat surface or carved on a flat surface. Notice that the horns would appear to come out the center of their head. And we know cows do not have horns like that. They're not unicorns. Um, but the horns are drawn in full frontal view, a different angle than what the head is. And this was not confusing to the ancient Remich or the ancient Egyptians. Everyone understood this. So, so this is why we bring in this information forward so we can understand it. Now, how the cow would naturally be uh, postural position would be how you see it on the right. And you see the horns are correctly facing forward. Why? Because the cow's head is facing forward. Everything is facing forward. Okay, so that's the difference. And I'm going to go through these slides um, pretty quickly because I'm going to just demonstrate the same thing over and over again. So here we see the human eye. We see a, a human in profile view. Now, a normal human being in profile view, we would not see the entire eye like this. But the entire eye is shown because it's showing it's showing the most important and most information uh, dealing with an object so that we can identify it. That was the part of the rule. So this is where we see a full human eye. We wouldn't see that if it was, this was uh, drawn or carved in a naturalistic representation. All right. So that's what I'm putting out there. This is how a profile view of a human being would look like. This is full profile. You will see part of the eye, but not the whole eye. The eye is not on the side of our heads. All right. So no one would try to mimic this, knowing that this is an artistic canon or artistic style in ancient times versus this. All right. So now let's look at the difference between poses that uh, famous poses that we're familiar with. The pose on the left is what's called the pose of adoration. And a lot of people are familiar with it and they um, 
perform this particular pose in adoration. We call it dua. So on the left-hand side, we have aspective, where the, where the figure is drawn with the shoulders in full frontal view, and everything else is in profile. But would this person be standing like this actually? And the answer is no. So how would the person be standing? They would be standing as you see this figure on the right. This is how this position is actually done. With both hands, everything is facing forward. The shoulders are not turned to a 90 degree angle to the right as you see on the left. Uh, everything is facing forward. This would be a, a pose of adoration. All right. That's the difference. Next. On the right hand side, we see an aspective view of the deity Sekhmet. Okay. The shoulders are squared. They are full frontal view. We have one breast exposed. The other breast is not. Everything else is in profile view, except the head crown. Remember, one of the rules I said, if the headdress or they have a crown, the crown is also in full frontal view. Now, perspectively, natural, a naturalistic uh, rendition of this same figure is what we see on the, right, the left-hand side. These are actual statues. Everything is facing to the front. Everything is facing in one direction in all three of these examples. All right. Next. Here on the right-hand side, we have a picture of a ram-headed deity. And notice that the horns are frontal view. They're squared towards us. The sun discs, the cobras on the top. This would not be a naturalistic rendition because the horns would, would go across the head, not from front to back. These rams would not be unicorns. Okay? On the left, same thing. See the crown? A king or, or um, a person would not wear their crown tilted at a 90 degree angle. But it's represented this way because this is aspective view because the scribes made it their uh, intention for us to see most of, of the object to be able to identify it. Next. Here is an image of Amen. Okay, in an aspective view, his shoulders are full frontal, squared off towards us. His crown is squared off towards us in frontal view. But look how it is naturally. You see the statue? Everything is facing forward. The crown at the top, the plume of feathers, these are plume of feathers. These are all facing forward. Over here, they're not. Because this is an artistic style versus a naturalistic style. Artistic, naturalistic. Okay, so no one would expect anybody to sit this way. No one would expect anybody to wear their crown this way. And by the way, this is uh, King Hatshepsut kneeling down, being coronated king of Kemet and, and being sanctioned by the deity uh, Amen. So even with her kneeling, her shoulders are squared and frontal. No one would be kneeling that way. They would be kneeling. Everything would be facing forward. This is only an artistic representation, a canon that was created by the scribes. Okay, so now with that said, what I want to go into is an actual comedic yoga pose. Because the poses that I've shown so far is just to drive the point home that this is a real and ingenious style that the scribes created and lasted for 3,500 years. Over 3,500 years. As long as Kemet existed, this style existed. 
You can find it from Dynasty 1 all the way to the end of uh, Kemet as we know it. All right. So the, there was just various different poses to, to drive that point home. And hopefully people understand uh, the difference between those two artistic expressions. So now we're going to go and show an actual comedic yoga pose and address the question that was asked earlier. So here is a um, actual a representation inside of a tomb on the left. Um, on the right hand side, we see the good brother uh, Yasir uh, Hotep Ra, uh, Lawrence, I believe. Uh, brother, I just refer to him as brother Yasir, and he is um, pretty much the the um, foremost uh, and pop pop and very popular uh, person in the yogic circles. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with uh, with this brother. And he does great work uh, with comedic yoga. And he has a lot of uh, people that are have been certified and students of uh, comedic yoga. All right. Um, he is actually in mimicking this particular pose that you see on the walls. So the question is, is this an actual pose that the ancient remage or ancient Egyptians did? And the answer is no. The reason why is because of the things that I've already explained, that this is simply an artistic style, an artistic representation, and there were rules to this. We have to remember, just like there's rules to language, we have grammar, which, which is made up of uh, morphology and syntax, and we have punctuation in writing scripts and things like that. Well, art has grammar, if you will. Art has rules. And they developed these rules and canonized it so that all the scribes through thousands of years did the same thing the same way. Okay. Now, this particular pose, some people refer to it as the Ampu pose, but it's the Henu posture, the posture of Henu. And I did a different video. I'm not going to go over it tonight, but where I gave the translation for all of the glyphs and the columns. That's why you see the numbers here. In column two, we see the, the word Heni. And we see the determinative here of the same pose. You see this little figure here is the actual determinative in the same posture. This is the, the pose of Heni, the gesture of Heni. Over here, we see the word again in column eight at the bottom and at the top of column nine. This time it's Henu. And the word actually means to rejoice, to jubilate. And in the other form, it means jubilation. And this is what these three figures are doing. The middle person is the king. The king's name is above his head, and this is Ramesu, all right? Menpeti-Ra would be his throne name. And on the right-hand side, Anpu-headed figure, or the jackal-headed figure, represents the souls of the city of P, which is in Lower Kemet. And you see the city here. The falcon-headed uh, deity represents the souls or the people of a different city in Upper Kemet called Neken. And you see the name here in column 7 and the top of 8. Nekin and P. These are two ancestral cities that were very important to the ancient Remich, ancient Egyptians. Okay? And they're performing this particular pose. All right? So now, in Kemetic Yoga, the postures that we're seeing, this particular one uh, specifically, is an imitation of a scribal style, not an actual pose that these ancient Egyptians actually performed. And that was the claim. Okay? And so the question is, how would these three figures actually be posed? Or what is the actual Henu posture or gesture? And here's the answer. 
We see Enpu. This is a this is a statue that is located at Cairo Museum. And you can see in the, in the far right, uh, left the uh, falcon-headed one. Both of them are posed forward-facing. Everything is facing forward. Nothing is sideways at a 90-degree angle or cock-backed whatsoever. There was a difference in the statuary that the scribes and the artisans did versus what they carved on flat surfaces. On flat surfaces, they used aspective method, and on statuary, they used perspective, naturalistic uh, uh, methods or expressions. This is how the pose should be done that you see on the left, not how you see it on the right. Okay, so we, we showed Enpu. Now let's show the king. This is how the king would be posed. Notice how everything is face forward. Okay, not a uh, 90 degree angle as you see on the right hand side. Now we're going to move to the falcon, the falcon headed one. This is how this particular gesture should be done. Not like you see it on the, on the right, but how you see it on the left. All right. Now, if you've noticed, if you caught on to, to what I'm showing, then you'll you'll realize that if you are um, if you are if you want to know how different postures were performed, you look at the statues, not on the flat surfaces carved. Don't expect it to be a naturalistic representation on flat surfaces carved as opposed to the statuary, the, the various different statues. That's where you'll find how to perform these particular gestures. All right. And I, I mentioned this before uh, on my original post is that if in doubt, then those who claim that these postures on the flat surface are true representations of actual postures, then you have to find any statue where this same pose is done at the same angles and you will not find it. The reason why is because these are not poses at all. These are not postures at all done this particular way. They're showing multiple angles at the same time. Remember that. And here they are again. Here's Enpu and the Falcon um, Henu postures. So both of them represent the personifications of the soul, souls of P and Nekin. And this is uh, how Henu rejoice or uh, jubilation is done. And this is in the Cairo Museum in uh, Egypt. All right. Just a few more uh, examples. And then I'll, I'll open up for comments if Unk and uh, Naya, if you have comments or I'm not sure if I can't see the comments in the chat. So here is a here's a king's um, uh, enthroned uh, king. In the figure of Wasir, and we see that he's representative of Wasir Kenti Amintiu, all right, as we can see in the column right before his uh, face here. And so notice how this figure is sitting with everything, the torso area is at a 90 degree angle from where everything else is, is uh, facing, profile view, the arms and everything. No, notice the ribbon, the sash, it's also facing us in frontal view. But would it be that way naturally? The answer is no. This is a scribal method that we know today as aspective. This is not how the king sat. No one sat like this. All right. No one would hold a crook and flail at a 90 degree angle 
and everything else is facing forward and, and rule their kingdom in this manner. This is not done this way. How would it be done? Like you see it on the left. This is a uh, statue, a, a smaller statue, but this is how everything would be facing forward. All right, so I'm just showing the contrast between the two different styles. Here's another one. On the left-hand side, we see aspective, an aspective representation of someone offering uh, uh, bowls, the bowl offering. We call them new bowls. All right, notice that the shoulders are full frontal view, squared off towards us. The, uh, we're viewing this particular object. But naturally, in statues, everything faces forward, as you see in these two examples here. All right, here's a king and a king presenting the bowl offering as well. Kneeling down, everything is facing forward. Nothing is cart, uh, contorted. Nothing is at a 90 degree angle whatsoever. This is how this would be done naturally, not like how you see it on the left-hand side. Artistic versus naturalistic. And here's the example side by side. Artistic versus naturalistic. Everything is facing forward. Over here, we have aspective rules applying. Shoulders are squared off, etc. Here's some more uh, poses. Now, mind you, not all of these poses are comedic yoga poses, so I don't want to mis get misconstrued. The point here that I'm showing these other poses is to show a consistent style that the, that the scribes did as aspectively versus perspectively with the, with the statuary versus what was carved on flat surfaces. So notice that, the, that all of the statues are naturalistic. They're all facing, the body parts are facing all the same direction. This is an offering of ma'at. This is an individual giving an offering of ma'at. Um, this person is giving a, a gesture of dua, but in a kneeling position instead of standing. This is the, the position of adoration, a kneeling version. Everything is face forward. The shoulders are not uh, squared off towards us. They're not, they're not bent 90 degrees uh, from being in profile view. Uh, this is an offering of, of a peace offering or, or a um, food offering. You see a hotep symbol here that was a, a, a mat represented food. And so this person given an offering. Everything is face forward. This person also as well, dua or adoration. This pose and this pose, same pose. So you see that everything is facing the same direction. Nothing is angled. One angle, not multiple angles at once, which will be aspective. Here is a aspective uh, representation of a woman giving birth. Remember, in ancient times, women gave birth squatting. They used to uh, put their feet on birthing stones, what's called birthing stones, and squat and utilize the force of gravity to help uh, with the delivery of a child. And so this is aspectively uh, represented here where the woman's shoulders are squared off at a 90 degree angle from profile view. And we know women did not give birth this way at a 90 degree angle okay so this is not naturalistic this is an artistic form an ancient ingenious way of representing these things uh here's just a few more i'm gonna quickly go through these here's some more aspective shoulders are squared off everything else is a 90 degree angle uh here's a, a deceased person um shoulders are squared off facing facing us everything else is in night is a profile view all right no one sat like this naturally. All right. Uh, here's some more examples. Shoulders are squared off. 
Everything else is in profile view. We see the full eye. We would normally see it that way. Uh, the king with uh, Heru. This is actually Hardemheb. Uh, here we see his name in the glyphs up, up above. Shoulders are squared off. Shoulders are squared off for the deity Heru. No one stood like this in, re in real life. This, this is an artistic uh, method that's being applied that we know today as expective. Of course, they didn't call it that back then, but we know it today as expective. All right. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Here's another example. On the right hand side, we have expective representation where we have people marching, running or what have you, walking, running, marching. Um, notice that all of their shoulders are squared towards us. Their, their torso is at a 90 degree angle from their profile view from the direction they're walking or, or marching. No one walked that way. No one marched that way. That is that would not be realistic or uh, it would defy. It would be counterintuitive. On the left hand side, we see naturalistic representation of how people would actually walk or march. OK, and both of these objects are authentic um, Egyptian artifacts. And here is another example of perspective view where you see the sh shoulders of this king in the lap. Um, and this is a perspective view and no one would naturally uh, be positioned this way. Okay. And lastly, this is one of the um, yoga postures, comedic yoga postures that's done that a lot of people may be familiar with. And this is the deity Ma'at with the wings expanded wings and so you will see people emulate this artistic style but no one in ancient Kemet actually kneeled and posed this way this is simply an artistic representation of this particular uh, posture that uh, the deity Ma'at as well as Aset um, kneels in and this is a symbol of protection uh, and I don't have time Maybe another time I will go into uh, what these postures actually uh, represent in terms of the information behind them. Tonight, I'm just going over and drilling in and hopefully people are benefiting and understand the difference between the artistic style that we know is perspective that we should that that um, um, was not expected to be mimicked versus the naturalistic ways that people actually did these things. OK, so no one kneeled this way and outstretched their arms um in this manner this is only to represent the the most information that we can have about these different angles it's multiple angles uh, shown at once notice that we only see one breast we don't see the other breast here if someone were to kneel this way naturally both of their arms would be open and everything would be facing forward just as a bird does birds don't put their bodies at 90 degree angles and, and try to fly with their wings at 90 degree angles versus their bodies uh, facing the uh, totally different angle. All right. So that's all I had. And hopefully um, the point is made and the question um, is answered. And again, I want to uh, rewind to the beginning, to the disclaimer. This here is not an attack on comedic yoga at all. This is clarifying that today's comedic yoga postures are not historically authentic or accurate. And that doesn't take away the benefit or the effectiveness of these postures because I've seen testimony. I have personal friends who practice yoga, comedic yoga for years and they 
benefit greatly from these postures that are performed in comedic yoga. They just happen uh, to be a modern innovation that's inspired by an artistic style and not an historical um, accurate, accurately done uh, postures. So they're, they're strictly inspired by an artistic style and they happen to benefit people, but they're not historical and they're not authentic, real uh, postures that the ancient uh, Remage or Egyptians would have performed. So hopefully that's clear. And, and in fact, this should strengthen the, uh, the, the practice of comedic yoga because of its effectiveness. It's effective irregardless if these poses were done by ancient people, uh, um, the ancient Egyptians or otherwise or anyone. They should stand on their own merit. And they do. And most people can testify to the benefits of these poses. They're just not historically done. So it's ingenious and it's innovative for us in, uh, in the Africans in the diaspora to invent something, to be inspired by something ancient and invent something uh, in modern times that actually benefits our people. So again, this is why I encourage people to take up comedic yoga and reap the benefits from it. All right. And I myself, when I said when I uh, time permits, I will be um, seeking out an instructor to learn myself. All right. So that's all I had. And, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if any of you all, if uh, Uncle or Naya, you had any questions or comments. Um, yes, I had a question. So you said earlier that the um, aspect of you, as well as the perspective you was canonized to protect it. And I was wondering, was it canonized to protect the artistic part of it? or possibly the psychology, because um, it sounds like it's a lesson in not only art, but in thinking and how you should think of things. Because um, we can apply that also to psychology and thinking, like looking at things from one dimension as opposed to looking at it from many different aspects. So you know, why do you yep. think that they canonized it? Did they canonize it because they wanted it to look the cer a certain way and uphold that certain dignity of the art, or was it to teach a lesson? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you brought it up um, because what you said is actually on point. Um, when we use the word perspective, we we don't use it only in art like I just showed. We also use it in in a sense of point of view in 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 thinking and information. Like I'll say that Naya, okay, uh, like you 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 may tell me something to say. Well, this is my take on it, or this is my perspective of this issue, and it won't be an object. It won't be an object drawn or anything. It's just your point of view, your perspective. And so um, so what you're asking is is um, on point because um, the Greek is from the Greeks and the European communities that we uh, tend to lean on perspective uh, methods as opposed to aspect. Aspective is a very African uh, thing, whereas perspective is a very European thing, even though we are are um, conditioned to accept it as the norm today. But think about it, aspective, understanding aspective whether it's artistic in, in actual objects or in thinking, we will start to look at things from multiple angles simultaneously. And like you said, psycholo there's psychological benefits of that. Now we won't be just uh, narrow-minded and streamlined in our thinking patterns. Now we'll, we'll see things from multiple angles at one time and we'll have an overview and a fuller understanding of different issues that we cover, discuss, and deal with on a day-to-day -day life. 
And this is and this is what caused this is partly of what caused African communities to be so genius and how the ancient remnants or ancient Egyptians were so uh, genius at at um, uh, constructing the civilization that we know and love as ancient Kemet and how it lasted so long because of all of these different small minute benefits that added up to their overall genius. So, yes, aspective. The thing about this way, if we were um, to adopt an aspective view, even in our studies and psychology, then we would be much, much better off. It'd be a lot less arguing because we have a fuller understanding of different issues and not from just one little narrow uh, point of view and say, oh, I'm right and you're wrong. But we're looking at the same thing. But you're looking at it from that angle. I'm looking at it from this angle. But if we deal with aspective, we'll deal with it with multiple angles at one time. Unc, you got anything? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's a lot of detail you put into that. And the new conscious community is really suffering from one, details of African history, African story, um, African consciousness, the whole nine yards. Like Sister Naya always says, we're suffering from uh, a fractured consciousness, all right? And I see how it play out in my life, right? And I see how it play out in the lives of the people I come in contact with. Uh, every day as an African, uh, I wanna work on myself. To allow myself room for growth, what do I mean? When faced with, with an idea that goes totally against what I believe, or what I think is right. Can I be African enough to be able to change? See, this is how we got in this place in the first place in our mind, right? We was caught up in systems, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. And we were stuck in that to the moment when someone else came up with an idea or concept or something that was different from what we believed. And it kind of jogged something. And the only reason we own shows like this is because we had enough in us to grow past where we was at. But now when we get to the point that we think we're finished growing, right? And we think we found eased our way into systems. Some of us have eased our way into pseudoisms, right? Remember it's the pseudoisms sometimes that get you out of Christianity and you cling to it. Things like chakras, right? Uh, Things like 65 million year old pyramids, things like melanin give you superpowers some kind of way. Things like Africans have always been here, you know, seven trillion years of history. We cling on these things because we feel like it keeps us out of the grip of religion. But the fact is this, as we call ourselves getting out of the grip of religion, we get, we get into something that's more diabolical, right? We get into the position where we think we really know. And we're unwilling to change our positions. So I'm glad that Brother Wuja, right, is giving you the details. The details on why, right, it's a misnomer to make the statement that there's some Egyptian yogurt. Now, when I say Egyptian yogurt, I'm talking about from the perspectives that the people that adhere to it, right, including postures, a certain movements and stuff that are claimed to be found in Kemet. This is the misnomer. The fact of yoga is not a misnomer. 
As a matter of fact, the word itself is cultural and denotes a certain culture in India. It does not denote an African culture, but it denotes certain cultures in India when you use certain terms because terms and words, right, are cultural, all right? So we need to really recognize that it's the details in history that would help push us forward. Because, you know, at the end of the day, why are we here? Why are we here for learning? We're here to learn and to grow and to push us off of positions that aren't historically correct or accurate. So the question was asked to me earlier, right? Does comedic yoga help black people? Does it help the people that practice it? And it kind of put me in like a, 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 it's a weird question because in my mind, I know what you don't know. I know that, that the ancient Nile Valley Africans, right? Did not practice yoga in the form that is being presented. They didn't do those positions. Wuja showed you how these positions had absolutely nothing to do with yoga at all. But being the cagey veteran people that we are, right? We take that and we form a whole thing called Egyptian yoga. And so does it help our people? Absolutely, the movements do help the people, right? Now I haven't done a scientific study on it, so I'm thinking it helps you. I haven't done research on that to fill all the numbers to see, does yoga really help you? You know, like meditation, does meditation really help you? How the numbers kind of kind of even it out, like maybe, maybe, maybe not, right? So the practice of yoga or Egyptian yoga helping people, right? The verdict's not in on that yet, but people will conclude that yes, it does. It's a very positive thing in the community. The problem for me is, that what I want to do is always be rooted in the truth and to somehow let truth has been changed or altered to something that makes more sense. I want to be rooted in the latest thing that makes sense, right? That shows growth and development. So knowing that I know that there's no actual poses, right, that the ancient Nile Valley's used, right? You know, it kind of bothers me, right? On the other hand, you say, well, man, that's yoga that's helping them out. Yes. But see, so I'm not here to appease people. I know I'm not. I'm not here to save your feelings. No, I'm not, because we're at war. We're at a culture war, right? The squad was developed to bring historical accuracy, regardless of what you believe and what you think. And so Brother Wuja has brought historical accuracy to the conversation. How he said, don't hate us. Hate the game, the game made us. The study of African history through historical analysis, through empirical data, right? Clearly shows us that those positions are really artistic renderings. And the brother gave you the names of the artistic rendering. What's it called? Perspective and what perspective? Me being an artist myself, I understand what perspective is. Your view, the way you see things. No human being can have a contorted chest and chest and back showing at the same time, right? So we, so all those who practice the African-American version of yogurt, calling it the comedic yogurt, I think that's okay. But I think those who also practice it should put this in historical context. The same thing with the unk, 
We have an African-American understanding of what the unk is. To African-Americans, the unk is the male phallus and the female womb. And they're coming together, life eternal. That's not an Egyptian, ancient Egyptian understanding of what the symbol was. To them, the symbol itself meant everlasting life. Now, the coming together of the penis and the womb always creates everlasting life. So I can see how the African-Americans come up with that. We have every right as functioning people on planet Earth. As a brand new tribe in North America, we have every right to take from our culture and form things that will help bring us together. I respect that. Right? So I respect the teachers that came before me, the Muda Ashby's and all that, that came up with certain ideas of chakras and comedic yoga and all that. Man, I can respect that. But from a historical analysis, trying to impose African-American ideas on Dial Valley Africans is just historically unaccurate. So without a shadow of doubt, Brother Wu Jai has absolutely proved, right, that there is no comedic yoga poses that you can find in Egypt. I just wanted to say that, right? And if I hurt your feelings, so what? It's all part of our growth as African-Americans. Okay, let me... That's let me hold a statement on that, brother. All right. Uh, I, I know we're going to talk about another topic, uh, but so let me close this out by saying uh, I want to I wanna, uh, make sure something is clear to people so that, uh, uh, you know, I've experienced <laughs> being, you know, this my argument being misconstrued and so we want to make sure that we separate the argument about the postures themselves versus yoga now we have to understand and everyone should already know this that yoga is more than those postures all right i'm only dealing with the postures and whether or not they were actually performed in ancient times and the answer is simply no that is an artistic style that I've just demonstrated. And I could go on and on and on and show and show the um, uh, more pictures and, and demonstrate uh, more, more and more and more. But I think the point was made with that. But what I don't want to be misconstrued is that the the other elements that's practiced in yoga or comedic yoga, um, that they are elements that can be found in the Nile Valley meditation um the focus of your concentration the meditation the breathing aspect and yoga all all encompassing is a philosophy a way of life and a and a practice that really is supposed to take a human being and make them divine and that is an integral or, or a fundamental aspect of african communities is to take a human being and in your lifetime you become a divine being and so there are different uh, rituals or different things that you do in your lifetime throughout your entire lifetime that you that you do to to reach that goal. And so there are practices in Kemet that you can find that are parallel or correlate or similar to what we see practiced in the Indus Valley that they're calling under the umbrella of yoga and in uh, the diaspora that they're calling comedic yoga. So, again, what I'm addressing are the actual postures not being authentically done or really done in that particular manner they're not but yoga is far more than just those postures all right so i just wanted to make sure that that um that was clear 
And that's a part of the conversation that I did not have and I purposely stayed away from about the other practices of yoga because that's a more lengthy conversation that I would enjoy having but in a controlled environment when people have a lot of time because it's a lot to explain. And I can show, improve, and back up with text about different things, about those actual postures, how they should be done, and how they're not for, um, and what they're used for, and what they represent versus the ones or um, versus the yoga practices that we can see um, that are outside of those postures. All right, so just keep that in mind. And we have to be careful uh, uh, with that. Yeah, and I think that it's important also um, that we can, that we recognize the dangers of using incorrect postures. I think that we can affirm that yoga is a healthy, um, effective style of increasing your circulation and increasing your strength and um, increasing your tenseness, like how, you know, tense you are, it kind of releases a lot. But at the same time, we can also acknowledge that it can be dangerous to call something something that it's really not. <laughs> so, I mean, we want our culture to 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 be free to practice um, our culture, but also we want to make sure that we're not making up things. So I think like the, this conversation is needed. So I just appreciate you, Wu Jawi, for taking the time and the effort to be so <laughs> detailed and methodical in your approach. So, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out. All right. So maybe this can kind of segue to the next um, topic because earlier I mentioned that the uh, perspective uh, concepts are mainly coming from European communities and the aspective methods and concepts and attitudes are coming from an African um, place. And so this is something that uh, can kind of bring us to the question of uh, what is, uh, you know, African and what is not. I know the question, the other question that we had is, um, are all human beings African? And I think that that is a, um, a loaded question on its, on its own. But I think, you know, if we start defining and narrow things down, it would be easier to, um, to understand. So I just want to kind of uh, segue in, into that. But just I'm going to close with this picture right here. Remember, if you ever have any doubt about aspective versus um, perspective, first of all, remember, get, the, get those reference uh, books and you'll, you should be able to follow and understand the content. But look at this picture, Kagemi, Google Kagemi, and you'll find this picture or many other pictures. Kagemi is a, is a famous um, piece. It's a well-preserved um, tomb. Um, and just look at, at him. Just stare at him. And you'll see that no one in their right mind would ever expect a human being to be in this position. And it's humanly impossible to do. All right. And so you have to ask yourself, why was this done this way? And every other figure done the exact same way. Would you mimic this? Would you mimic this pose? You can't. So no, you won't. But for some reason, the other poses, we, we tend to forsake this reasoning and logic and throw it out the window. And then we want to mimic the other poses and we want to attach them to other practices and, and call it, you know, as an umbrella uh, under comedic yoga. All right. So this is what is being addressed, not comedic yoga itself. All right. So uh, anyway, so I'm done. <laughs>
So, so, all right. So, I'm, I'm gonna put the question on, on, on the floor. I guess Naya, you can. Uh... My fault. I was muted out. Hold on, let me get that down. Yeah. So, all right. Um, I know Naya want to go all the way in. No, I don't. <laughs> so, what? Yeah, you do. You can't help yourself. I already know. So, so, so let me ask the question, Naya, sis, sister Naya. I mean, Naya. after we Jahu did such an excellent job, he's forcing me to be civilized. Now I have to kind of think, you know, very articulate uh, way so I can, uh, you know, keep a level because he really started off strong. So I'm like trying to keep that level. <laughs> so tell you what I want to do. Let me put in, let me go first. Make it quick and snappy, right? And I think it's going to help. I'm gonna put some uh, resources in the chat room first, all right, to help uh, the listening people kind of, um, kind of at least get my perspective on this. Okay, let me let, let me restate the question so everybody who's watching is clear on what we're uh, moving into. The question is: Are all human beings African? Are all humans African? Okay, so that's what we, you know, we want to have a little, little chat. Now, this is a hot topic in the Amara squad. Like Unc said, you know, we kind of, we kind of go, go at it. You see, if I, I guarantee, you if, if the, if the viewer audience were a fly on the wall in our conversations, man, you all, you all would get the popcorn out every time. <laughs> you all would bring the popcorn out every time. You know how, you know, how people post on, on comments and say, uh, I'm, I'm just here for the comments, <laughs> and they'll mm -hmm. post those memes. Well, they would do the same thing to our conversation. So, so, so for those watching, you all are getting a little inside uh, a view of the kind of conversations that we have, and we kind of, um, you know, have a spirited debates among ourselves, all in all in fun and 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 um, a learning experience. But anyway, that's the question: Are all human beings African? Yes or no? Um, go. There you go. All right. So I'm gonna go to the Amaral Squad group, and what I'm gonna do is the Amaral Squad. No, I don't want to do the 5.0 group. I'm gonna put all my my sources in. Uh, I'm a Raw Squad scholarship group, right? Uh, let me find where I posted it in there. I'm gonna put it right under the video, right? Putting all my sources in here real quick. Support my claim. I think I got a breakthrough here. So here we go. So first, I'm gonna come to. I want to deal with Spencer Wells, right? And I want to deal with National Geographic and the genome, the genographic project. All right. Um, now, if the genome project don't know this answer, then we're in trouble. And I think if y'all look on this reference right here, it's it's good. You can sit down with your children and kind of understand what they stand. So let me do this. Uh, there's like one, two, three, four discussion questions, right? So it starts like this. It says discuss the African origins of humanity. They say, write the following quote from Dr. Spencer Wells, Genographic Project, uh, led scientists uh, on the broad. Now watch this. This is a statement. You and I, in fact, everyone all over the world were literally African under the skin. All right, what is he talking about here? Under the skin. So on the surface, as you look at each other, man, it seems to be a lot of differences. Watch this. It's a brothers and sisters separated by a mere 2,000 generations. 
old-fashioned concepts of race are not only social, socially diversive, but socially wrong. Now, first of all, right, white people made up that thing about race. Wasn't us. Remember, they came over the mongoloid, they came negroid, mongoloid, and caucasoid. That was their thing. That was that was racism, white supremacy at an all-time high. But anyway, let me keep reading. It says, ask what the quote means, okay? Have them discuss what the phrase African under the skin means to them. Explain that genographic project and other scientific research projects provide evidence that all humans, past, present, can trace their ancestry back to a single ancestor who lived in Africa about 60,000 years. Ask the student what Dr. Wells meant by old-fashioned concepts of race. Explain that the genographic evidence shows that all humans are 99.99% identical and do not and, and do not fall neatly into physical categories some people call races. The differences amongst us like skin color and hair texture evolve as humans adapted to different environments. They account for less than one-tenth of one percent of our genetic makeup. That is an important phrase. Let me go back here so y'all can really get my point right here. Excuse me, Uncle, real quick. Where'd you put the link? I'm I put it in where... the group. Right underneath the video we're doing right now. All right, I'm I'm having problems finding it because I was gonna share it while you while you're showing it. So, but I mean talking about it. But go ahead. I don't All see right. It. Hold on, it's right here. If you could tag I'll me, you, I if... can put it right here. Here, I'll put it right in our chat real quick. Right there. All right. Okay. So watch this, y'all. So we heard what Spencer Wells said. He said we're all Africans under the skin. Okay. The title today, the the title of the article itself is called "All Africans Under the Skin." All right. So what is meant by this? By, by, what is meant by this statement here? Well, tell you what I figured out here. So when Brother Unc says, when Spencer Wells says, when scientists say that we're all Africans or all Africans under the skin, this is what is meant, right? We're basically saying, right, that we all come from the same place. Let me do this again, right? Provides evidence that humans past and present can trace their ancestry back to a single ancestor. That what is so when I make that statement, that's all I mean. And I'm going to leave it right there, and I'm going to give you all some more reference on the subject. That is what is meant by the statement, we're all Africans under the skin, or everybody living on planet Earth is Africans. This has nothing to do with race, and this is what I mean when I say that. And I'm done. There you go. And I'm thinking that's crystal clear, so don't come at me with the who blah whoo blah whoo blah I'm simply saying that we all trace ourselves back to one black man and one black woman. That's what Unc is saying. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, I thank you for that very detailed perspective. <laughs> um, now let's try to look at it the African way, have some perspective, okay? Um, you know, I think it's important that we we look at before we even have the discussion about who's African, that we take a look at the definition of who is human, you know, what is the meaning of human and what is the meaning 
of African. Um, and I just, you know, suggest that you guys go to Google and just quickly just look at those definitions because it's very important in the African aspect of that you define or you target or you identify the history, the historical accuracy of that which you're talking about. And we talked about that earlier. So if we look at African, this term African, what you see is that this term was used, you know, in the early 15th century to primarily describe African-Americans, like Unc said, it was part of a white supremacist paradigm in which they drew political borders around the continent, around the world, and then named the continents in order to execute their plan. So when we look at the term African, what we're looking at, we're looking at a term that was defined outside of the African continent, right? So when we're talking about the human story, right, we have to make sure that we use the most historical, accurate term to describe the group of people who left Africa, which from a scientific perspective is homo sapiens sapien. That's the historical term that scientists use to identify the human race, homo sapiens sapien. The definition or the term African, that's a social construct that was developed outside of Americans by Europeans as a means of justifying racism and white supremacy. Does that mean that the continent, the landmass, the ecological system today of Africa is not valid? No, it does not. What it means is that when you look at human migration patterns, you have to see that those people who left out of Africa, it was a small group of people, less than a thousand, and everyone outside of African, African belonged to that group. So the African, when we use African and we use in our African paradigm and we're looking at the aspective aspects, so we're looking at the many different aspects, not just one perspective, we're looking at many different aspects. We see that the African is more of a social construct and it is mostly dealing with the tribal people of Africa. So everyone who stayed in Africa during the out of Africa migration, scientists called them Africans and everyone who left, they called them non-African. But remember, they're only talking about it from a social construct, meaning how it was defined by Europeans during this period of imperialism, basically. Africans do not, within the traditional sense, identify themselves with a land mass. They're very specific. So they have specific tribes, they have specific culture, they have histories. Um, they are not a nationalistic people. As you know, we're very tribal people. We do not have a United States of Africa. We have a tribal nation within, with many different countries. We have the Afar people, the Ashante, the Berber people. We have so many different tribal people. And these people, their social construction of who they are is not linked to the continent in which they live. Their social construction of who they are is specifically linked 
to their tribal origin. The word African is mostly a term that was developed by us, um, just like comedic yoga. And it was used for us as African-Americans to develop a sense of identity and who we were and who we are. And so although it is a valid term, you have to also acknowledge that Africa is also a tribal nation and they don't necessarily identify as African. If you ask them who they are, oh, I'm Iku, I'm this, I'm Ashante, you know. So we have to be careful not to throw everyone into the African category using our perspective and look at our aspects and the different, the, what makes us special and what makes us African is more than just perspective. It's for many different reasons. So yes, the first humans were homo sapiens sapiens, okay? African are those who stayed in Africa and non-Africans are those who left out. So that's a brief introduction. <laughs> okay, so, well, um, nice. all right, so let me give my, I'm gonna get, just give my little quick comment on that, you know, cause it's been a, a topic uh, that we've all discussed. <clears throat> and um, so remember the question is, are all humans African? And so what I always do is I separate the social, cultural and political context from the biological one. And I, and I try to stay consistent with that because when you don't, you start to confuse the, the, the issue. So the answer is biologically, um, all human beings, and I think everyone agrees on this um, uh, for sure, that all human beings, all homo sapiens, all living human beings today can ultimately trace their lineage back to Africa biologically. Um, there's not a human being that's alive today that cannot trace their lineage ultimately back to a place that we know today uh, as Africa. So that's, that's biological and it's dealing with time. And then socially and culturally and politically, um, are, are, we, are all human beings African? The answer is no, because we have different people, different populations for different reasons. They practice different things. They speak different languages. They have, they have developed different ideologies um, and they have different um, uh, engage, they engage in uh, the rule of power, which is politics differently. So everyone's not the same socially, politically, or even culturally. And I think that particular um, definition was the way that the ancients used to demarcate or differentiate people. Uh, not in a racial construct that we know today. Race did not exist in our, in our paradigm that we know today did not exist in ancient times. They didn't, they didn't do the Crayola crayon uh, thing like we do today um, and all, you know, all that stuff. They dealt with um, a far more uh, other things that we would probably identify as culture in, in, as an umbrella term where they did made distinctions between populations of people, you know. So that's my, my thing is that our humans are um, all African, uh, ultimately, fundamentally, biologically, yes, trace back to Africa. Uh, today, are, are all human beings African, not socially, politically or culturally? And I put, I put forth this question and, and I'll, I'll end here. This is the question I, I raised that kind of bring the, home, the point home from, from, from what I mean by what I say. Uh, for example, um, you have uh, Europeans who have, who have colonized and occupied Africa and more, uh, um, more prominently in South Africa. And so those people have been there 
for for a while they've had children and grandchildren and so on and so forth where it took to the point where their children they were born and raised in africa they speak uh an african language they're familiar with the african customs and traditions uh not everybody of course i'm speaking in general um and so we have that dynamic that exists today that we cannot uh, deny and yet we have uh, african-americans in or africans in the diaspora over here in the united states who may have never stepped foot in africa don't speak an african language don't know or understand the the living african traditions from the continent and may not bother to even uh, want to know etc we have those two scenarios that exist today that we cannot deny and the question is um which one is more african socially culturally or politically and the answer to that will show will show that a what would you consider a white person or european can actually be socially more african or you know in that construct more african than an african who identifies as an african-american and so we so i bring that up because we have to be very careful of how we are are um the context that we're using this discussion in and stuff and so forth so that that's my take mm-hmm interesting yeah i mean i think that and i've heard you make that point before um i've heard you make that point before that's why you know i try to you know clarify what an african is um an african again it was something that was developed in america not africa or south africa i mean again africans are very tribal so i mean if you don't belong to that tribe if you're not part of the his the history of Africa in terms of tribe, then you're not in, to those people. They're not African. African Americans, you know, coined this term because we didn't necessarily know our tribal affiliations, whereas Africans did. So I don't know if we can, you know, make that create a context for that paradigm because it's just not historically accurate. I mean, Africans didn't create uh, the United States of Africa. They didn't make a, a set of, they didn't write a canon that says that everyone that lives within our borders of Africa are African. They didn't do that. Well, so we got to be careful not to assume and, and pretend as if they did because they've never did that. Well, Africans did not coin the term tribe either. They never called themselves tribe. Tribe is from the Latin and the Romans. So the, the, those are Romans who divided their eth ethnicity divisions and called them tribes. So we have to be extra careful to make sure that if we're going to go all in, to be all in and, 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 and deal with it from, you know, the source. So when we say that, that, the, um, that the term African was coined by, you know, United States or, Af or, or Americans and things like that, um, we can say the same for the word tribe. And, and we tend to like the word tribe and we say Africans are tribal and we use the word tribe, tribes and things like that. But they didn't call themselves that and they didn't see themselves. It was it was a it was an institution that was set up in the communities that that we have to you know speak on and identify irregardless of the terms and the names. So once we take the word tribe away and take the word African away, the point that I'm making is that there are there are Europeans that have occupied the continent of Africa in the south that we call South Africa that do more African things like the other Africans on the continent than maybe people who with dark skin that we would that we would normally call African Americans 
they do more African things than than those people. And so irregardless of the term terminology. So what do we say in those instances? Are those white are those uh, Europeans less African? And so it goes back to what we're defining as an African. And and, and, it, and it will take us to this cycle, this, this circle uh, conversation because we say, well, Africa is a continent. Africans don't identify with with the continent or the or the you know, Africa and so on and so forth. Right. That would be the Afrocentric thing to do is to take it to the source is to identify, look at African people where they were in their mentality and figure out what they meant by a tribe or a group or whatever. Look, look at what they meant by it. And I can assure you, once we do that, we will see that they didn't mean that and they didn't have a nationalistic view on it. So, I mean, if we look at Africans, if we look at what they thought of who they were, we can we can bet that it wasn't a nationalistic view. So if they didn't do it, why then will we do it and just throw everyone into the African pie when that's not an African way of looking at the world around us? Well, let me ask you this: When you say whoa, 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 Wuja, hold on, because I know y'all gonna be y'all gonna do this for a minute. I just want to throw mine in my little statement. Once again, when Brother Unk says, "Watch this," here's another article for you. Check this out. And it's entitled, We Are All Africans. All right? Now, when these scientists are using this and these geneticists are using it, right, they're using it to show that that our, that all our, everybody's DNA tell a part of the human story. And that story takes us back to Africa. That's why scientists use it. And they use it for no other reason, right? They're not concerned whether we want to accept it as uh, Brits or Spaniards or Africans, right? Uh, it ain't the, the, really. I would say it's African politics because it puts a square back on the continent of Africa where humanity started. So really, the whole evolutionary thing and all that is really in our favor. It's really promoting our politics. You know, like we always say, one, black people are the origin of civilization, right? Two. Black people are the oldest people on the planet. Three, black people are the mothers and fathers of humanity. This is our politics. Remember that, y'all? So look, I just put that in the group real quick. You can just go ahead and say that link. And it's simply saying this. This is all they mean when they say we all Africans, right? They ain't even getting slick. Every person's DNA contains part of the human story. How our ancestors, lanky tool-using apes, Apes and monkeys are two different things. Let's get all that straight. You got the great ape, right? And you got lesser apes. Monkeys are lesser apes. Use apes as scientific classification. And watch this, spread across the planet. Colonizing environments as varied as the Himalayas, the Arctic, and the Amazon basin. First of all, niggas ain't running around with Levi jeans on. All right? They're not doing that. They're exposed. They're living in the elements, right? Genes are being activated by the environment. Let me keep going, though. It says millions of people have had at least part of their DNA study, all right? So they study in different populations of DNA. And at the end of the day, the conclusion is very, very simple, that all humans living today came from 
a black man and a black woman, and that black man and that woman reside in Africa. That's all they're mean. Right. So if you want to accept it or not, or whatever it is, and I don't know, but when they're using it, I realize that they're simply just using it to show you our point of origin. That is it. No more, no less. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, right. So. I mean, okay, I think that I think you make some good points there, but the conclusion that you came up with, I don't feel I don't agree with it because I didn't science, come up with it. No, no, hold on. I didn't come up with that conclusion. I just read where it came from. I I did I didn't come up with that. That's not Unc. Unc is not in the lab. Nope. Don't put that on me, sis. Right, but your There's conclusion, well. the the well. evidence that you that you that you presented, had to do with the origins of humanity. Yes, this conversation yes. is about if we're all Africans, which is a social paradigm. So no one's debating what the origins of humanity. <laughs> That's no, a no, different see, argument. Oh, stop right there. See, this is where we always get confused. Remember. I say, I say we're all Africans. And that's why I came up with the statement, black African power, because I knew scientists use that. So I say, wait a minute, I want to separate us from being all, I want to be black Africans. Now, black Africans, right, you would, they, they wouldn't be continental Africans. Black Africans would be the, the Africans in America. You know what I'm saying? So I, I'm just saying that that's not, they strictly using it in its genetic value, sis. That's why they're using it. So, so, so when I say it, that that's what I'm meaning, and that is the conversation. Are we all Africans? We're all Africans if we're using it genetically. Let's settle. Let, let me settle, settle, settle with that right there with you. If we're using it genetically, then we're all Africans. If we're using it any other kind of way, then we're not Africans. Genetically, our genetic point of origin, yes. So if we use it for our genetic, I'm using it for our genetic corner origins when I say we're all Africans. Okay. So if we're all Africans, why do science study non-Africans and label them as non-Africans? Why do they, scientists, if that's the end of the conversation, why do scientists categorize people into two groups, either African or non-African? If that's the end of the story, uh, Let me they wouldn't be making additional um classification system so because me, it's not the ending of the story it's actually the beginning of the story i agree the ending of the story is who is africa the origins of humanity start in africa and the species that group who left was a very small group and it does not represent the totality of africans genetically culturally or socially. It was a small group of people, homo sapiens sapien, early men who went into um, different parts of of the um, of the continent and Asia and European Europe. They went and they traveled and from there, based on their location, they developed these unique characteristics which scientists label under the terms of either African, Asian, European. To say that everyone is African is then to kind of create a problem logically because then if everyone is African, no one can be Asian or European. So well, we got to be careful. That conversation that we're having regarding the, the origins of, of humans and whether or not everyone is African today are two different um, arguments and we need to clarify that. 
Okay, let me just chime in real quick on that. This is why I'm a very I'm a stickler for for these two terms when I say it. You won't hear <laughs> you won't hear me say everyone is African. I will add one or two terms, either or. I will say everyone is fundamentally African because that covers that covers the concept. Or I'll say everyone is ultimately African because what I'm implying is the origin of humanity. So all I got to do is say that and then everything is understood and the conversation can continue to is everyone today presently African? The answer is no. But everyone is fundamentally African or ultimately African? The answer is yes, because now I went from the genetic uh, origin to now you crossing over to a social um, uh, demarcation. And by the way, the answer to that is the reason why they say African versus non-African is dependent upon where the mutation took place that caused the common ancestor for that particular genetic population. So wherever that mutation took place geographically, if it took place off the continent of Africa proper, then they're considered non-African. If it took place on the continent of Africa proper, they're considered African. And that is the criteria by which they separate non-African from African. It depends on where that genetic mutation took place that sparked that particular uh, massive population uh, genetic pool uh, um, of people. And we know that today we can we can um, identify those different mutations by what's called haplotypes and haplogroups. So if the haplotype or the haplogroup, which represents our codes that represents mutations, if those mutations occurred on the continent, then they're African. If it occurred off the continent, then they're not African. That's how they um, separate the two. But I had a question. I had a question. Uh, I want to back up just a little bit for clarity. Because when you mentioned, uh, Naya, when you mentioned uh, natu- nationalistic or, or the Africans did not do things national, I just want to make see what, if you're talking about continent-wise or national-wise in terms of, um, are you saying that Africans didn't have a sense of nation, nation or nation or nationality? Or are you saying no. the continent? No, that's a great question. So let me clarify that. So with so when you look at like how like human communities began in that context, you look at how the social fabric of our race began. It began in really small groups. So the group was very important to the survival of that particular community. And so they depended on those people who were immediately there and able to work and protect and to do what needed to happen in order for them to be successful wherever they were. So when I make the comment that Africans from a cultural perspective are generally not nationalistic, I'm meaning that they're more culturally and community based. So oh, they one, one, one second. I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing some um some noise. Oh, is that you? If you could mute your mic. Yeah, that's yeah. him. Oh, let me mute that. Hold on. <laughs> Damn. I can't stop. <laughs> My thing. If you can mute yourself, uh, there you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so when I say Africans, I'm talking about in the most traditional sense in terms of nationalistic. I'm saying as a group how Africans evolved and was able to be successful and evolve is through a small group and, you know, building on a community and worrying and depending on the people within their immediate community, not necessarily um, 
in the global type of continent way where we see in racism and white supremacy, where they look at the state and the nation as the primarily as the primary rulers and authoritarians in in that um, whatever geographical location they are in. Africans tend, from a psychological perspective, which is then translated into their behavior look at each other from a community-based perspective and they depend on the people in their immediate community. Okay, so now I just want to uh I guess share this because Kemet is the is is does not agree with what you just said because Kemet itself is is probably the world's first confederate uh polity state and they took 42 different communities and united 20 of them in one area, in one under one umbrella, and then another 22 under a different umbrella, and then merge those two big pieces and form the first one of the first uh, confederacies called Simatawi, which we shorten and say Tawi, the land, the 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 um the two lands, and so we had a, a king that was uh, possessor and owner of this entire uh, Egyptian world that consisted of two lands that were uh, thousands of miles. And they had and they had a very deeply rooted nationalistic uh, perspective and, and view on things. So Kemet, yeah. Kemet would be that exception to what you just described, where they did have a national thing, where they did see things um, and a hierarchy and uh, different communities of uh, uh, sync synchronized, and and we have to we have to honor that and respect it because it's very genius. Because we we if if we figure out how that these people in the Nile Valley unified over thousands of miles of territory up, up and down the Nile and maintain that unity for over 3,500 years, we would be on to something very, very powerful because back in the day, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't have cell phones where they can, where they can synchronize things like, like who, you know, how did they know to do everything the same and stuff? You know, I, you know, there's answer to that, but I'm just saying for us to explore that, we have to acknowledge that and recognize that. So. Right. And that's why, and that's why it's important that we look at um, Africa, the term African, and as well as the principle of being African in context of today, because, you know, we can look at, you know, like you say, different cultures within Africa and, and of course, find cultures that were nationalistic. But if we look then today at the majority of the African cultures, we see something um, that is a little different. And that doesn't mean that it's different, that it's bad, or it's the worst way of doing things. But I think in order to center ourselves in the psychology of the African, we have to start somewhere. So it's best to start at the core and look at what the majority do, because that's a better indication of, of, of um, the cultural principles. But at the same time, we have to also look at imperialism and racism and white supremacy. And we have to understand the system that they develop is totally different from that of Kemet. So they're national, when I use nationalistic, I'm strictly referring to the system of racism and white supremacy and how it uses imperialism as its mean of capturing people who are more tribal and who are in the smaller parts of Africa and around the world who depend on community. So we got to give the voice to the voices. We have to speak up for those tribes in Africa and those, those different cultural communities. And we have to recognize them for their history and their diversity because the thing to this matter the reality of it is this only a small group of people 
populated the world. The, um, the small, there's a small group of people who left Africa who are responsible for the diversity we see in America. It's less than a thousand of them. If you wanna look at the DNA of the first Africans and then compare it with the DNA of those Africans living on the continent today, the differences are apparent. The, the base of the root, the genetic, um, the haplogroup, the lineage that starts in Africa is a very archaic lineage. It, it, they call it for um, maternal, I think it's L-O. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then for the male, I think it's um, A double zero. So it's very old. You see very few Africans even living today with those old markers. In fact, you see very few Africans with older markers than a lot of us African-Americans, like a lot of African-Americans have older markers in America than they have in Africa. And the reason why is because at the, the group who left Africa specifically shared more affinities to what the Khoisan people than they do to Africans, the majority of Africans today. As you know, the Khoisan once were the largest group of Africans, but because of migration patterns and, and the environment, they had to move. And so when they moved, they had to assimilate and you know they kind of changed. But when you look at their DNA, you see the differences between a West African and a Khoisan and even some other some other Africans. You see some some differences in the markers and in the codes where it develops. So we can't we can't say that all humans today are African, knowing that a even Africans today have share different haplogroups with the original Africans, and then those who are outside of Africa show different um, characteristics of those original Africans. So we can't just throw everything in the melting pot and say, oh, we're all the same. We have to, we have to respect the culture and give greater specification and look at the, the, as the different aspects of it and not just one particular point of view, which is we're all African. Because I feel like that term, that statement is a very political statement. And when Rick Kittles was on the show, he indicated that science was very political. So when you just say, oh, when scientists are saying that everyone is African, that's a very political statement. It, it, it's not necessarily that they're looking strictly at genetics, but they're also incorporating their political, their politics into that as well, because they're not um, recognizing the diversity. Anytime you have a group of, anytime you diminish the diversity of a group, you minimize them. And so it, it may sound like, oh, a great thing to hear, oh, everyone is African, but in reality, we're diminishing the entire African experience because we're not looking at each group individually and studying them and studying their culture and their language and what they had to go through. We're just throwing everyone into the box, which is very African-American, by the way. <laughs> Africans don't do that. So basically what you're saying is scientists that look at the diversity in genes make a political statement, right, to say we all Africans to trick us. That's basically what you're saying. That's your conclusion. No, you remember we talked about that reframe you did? You do? That was the beginning. Wait, you just said it, though. Then you, I, my no, fault. I, that's not what I said, huh? We got to work say? on that. I thought you said when they say, when scientists use it, they use it as a political statement. Well, but but you got to remember, politics isn't a trick. Politics is a strategy. It's called politics. 
<laughs> Politics is a valid science. It's a it's a it's more of a mental game, but it's a valid strategy. Not to say that they are using it in a bad or a good way, because I mean, I, you know, it's just to that say up? that it, it's poli it's politics involved in in science as well. It's not always as I objective agree. as we want it to I be. Agree. So I'm saying, so what would be the so, okay? Explain so you want to get into that? Really, you want to change the yeah. subject? <laughs> no, I don't want to change the subject. I want to because because you you keep making that statement. But you changing the subject though. I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying is how does it benefit them, right? To say from a genetic perspective, because they're looking at the data, and when they're using this term, they're using it from a genetic perspective to give us our origin. How is that politically helping European, because white, because black scientists make the same statement, white scientists make the same statement. So, so how does this help the scientific community, right? I guess we're presupposing that the scientific community is really white, right? How does that help them politically? Because that's what you're saying. I want to explain no, it. That, that's not what I'm saying. That's the discussion you want to have. Okay, all um, right. We can move on. No, we can move on. That's fine. That, that's the that's discussion not, you want to have. I don't want to have it. Nope, nope. I, I don't, I don't want to have a discussion. We yeah. call that check make room. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I mean, you want to change the subject to your, no, your, no, your, no, your no. sweet spot so you no, can no, be. No, no, Oh, boy. <laughs> See, so. Hold up, but hey, I gotta I gotta remind the viewers, right? See, this this goes on all the time, man. This is this this is this is the beauty. Chief Holiday up. He seemed to be a moron on the subject. This is this is the beauty. This is the beauty of. Let me give you two minutes of fame. Chief Holiday is officially a moron, and I say this very intelligently. You are a moron because you consistently fight against the truth with a lie. You refuse to study. You you know. You, you denote value in DNA studies. You denote the value of the Atlantic Ocean, how serious it is. You you just destroy the African origin of humanity with complete foolery, Chief. Not one time have you ever placed a real article of study. You continue to confuse it. No, you don't confuse. Your argument is so crazy now. You're only confusing yourself. But I can't believe you have not moved on. I cannot believe you have not studied to the point where you would at least understand. He talks about our ancestors are in America first. How in the hell would that be, Chief? Explain that to us. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you know, the, you know the lovely thing about DNA? It's called a molecule clock. And they can actually go into the DNA and go backwards in the DNA in time and tell where that place of origin is, bro. I hate to tell you, they can absolutely do that. Hey, so let's let's do this. Let's let's um uh since you brought up uh, somebody I guess in the chat because I don't I I'm just now looking at the chat. So are there any were there any questions or comments? Let me let me scroll through because you know we we could talk we could build all night because we we do this all day every day. And I I want people to yeah. understand. I want people to understand that the Amon Ra squad. You have to remember the Amon Ra squad. We are we are for those who are old enough to to remember uh, Voltron cartoon. We're like Voltron. <laughs> We got we we have our independent focus and strengths and weaknesses and we come together and we form Voltron and we share ideas, we uh we vet each other's information, we debate each other, we do all of this stuff uh you know behind the scenes among each other and and we have some spirited debates, uh you know all kinds of you know Unk gets beat up all the time, 
uh, Nia gets beat up all the time. You know, the brother Wajao is 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 batting. You know, I'm I'm 100 from the free throw. You know, <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just wait I'm just, a minute, wait a minute. I'll just play. I want to really see see Unc was boasting a little bit, so I just wanted to bring up that political <laughs> thing again because um, I Dr. Talk Mugen, about it, remember? You say you didn't want to do it. No, but you didn't give me time to think about it. You know, ah, <laughs> uh, you uh. <laughs> Like Dr. Marimba Ani, she talks about some of the political, the political motives. So if you haven't gotten her book, Urugu, you pick it up. I think the most important thing to know about science, hit, science, science is that some of the ways that it can be political is that sometimes it's like they take money from you know different organizations and they want them to produce research on that particular subject. So you know, it's kind of like lobbying, but for the most part, science is a fair, it's a great way to come up with with conclusions, but it's also political because the entire field of science was based on imperialism. It was based on certain ideas and structures and systems. Africans, we were both, we were the first scientists, but we also were very intuitive and spiritual people as well. So um, when you say that science is right 100% of the time, you know, that's good. But just because science is right doesn't mean that you can't have a conversation about culture. Like, you know, Wujawu just had an excellent presentation of art and how beautiful the ancient Egyptian um, people were able to teach so many valuable principles and ideas through art. You know, we learned about perspective and aspect that those are just as valid as science. So sometimes when people look at science as 100% accurate and art as 100% um, inaccurate, then you lose something. You lose the ability to see all the other little things. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why it can be political because it just focuses so on the perspective and not the aspect. I'm gonna keep using that. <laughs> you gonna use those words now. <laughs> I'm gonna use that all but, week long. Thank you for that fire. No, <laughs> let me let me say this uh, to add to to that because uh, you made me think of it uh, real quick. It's it's back to my my topic. Um, the aspective versus perspective is a real phenomenon in 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 African communities, and it reflects in their um, deities. And in what we would call religious um, uh, performances, rituals, and text for, for those communities that had writing. So in Kemet specifically, and what I mean by that is, is that perspective, remember, perspective is, is like mono view. Like you have your, your view and you're going to draw or, or, or represent whatever that view is. Aspective is multiple angles because you're taking independent things from different angles and putting them together into one image irregardless of their relationships and so this is what african gods are or deities this is why they they permeate different areas of life this is why a deity like let's just say for example ma'at uh she can she can represent um truth and all these other different um, um definitions that people give to it on multiple levels cosmically what takes place in the off the planet earth in the skies socially to the to the social uh, uh, politics of the kingdom, um, community-wise on a smaller, narrow part in terms of a family, 
and then personally inside of the human body and physiologically. So one deity can actually encompass different layers of, of areas of existence all simultaneously. And that, and that is a representation of aspective principles. And so this is very African. This is, this is why uh, African communities or the African idea of God kind of bucks or is the opposition of the mono, so-called so monotheistic aspect of God because that would be a mono or singularity, this one perspective. Africans were had a, a multiplicity, a unity within the multiplicity and vice versa. Whereas, whereas the Abrahamic or the European constructs, they don't. And that's why they have a problem. And that's why they're always at odds. Allah is one. Allah is the greatest. Allahu Ahad. Allah Akbar. All that kind of stuff. Yahoo or Yahweh. Um, what's the thing? Yahweh Ahad. Or, or you know, Hero Israel. The Lord thy God is one God. You know, they always got to emphasize that because because they have to they have to indoctrinate people to go away again, to go against the natural flow and natural way of how things are. And that's what the Africans did. So I just want to kind of emphasize that point of why the deities are multifaceted. Every single one of them. You can't pinpoint a deity and say, OK, this is what it represents only. But in Christianity and stuff, you can, you know, in Abrahamic tradition, but not in African traditions. But but can't we also apply that to psychology, though, right? And how we view information. Like if we're looking at things from a singular perspective or one way, from a psychological perspective, that can put you at a disadvantage. Would exactly. you agree? No, 100%. And that's, and that's absolutely right. And that's why what we call logic, the logic has to be consistent on all levels. Like I can't, I can't, on this end say one plus one is two but then get in this area and now all of a sudden one plus two it it, it becomes contradictory there has to be consistent logic that gels everything together and they were very meticulous and careful at doing that and that gelling or that or that that bond that law that combined everything would fall up under the deity also that we know as ma'at and so ma'at right. rules the cosmos ma'at is the glue of existence and that's on a cosmological level, social level, everything, you know. So this is why those things apply. So I'm just giving giving an example of how this aspect of perspective goes beyond art. It 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 was the norm. It was the way that we did things. So of course it's going to manifest in the art. It's going to manifest in the ideology or the psychology that you you said. It's going to manifest in the rituals and in the text and things. It's going to manifest that way. So wouldn't you right. say whoa, the, whoa, whoa. the nice. belief? Nah, One more question, and then I'm gonna let you go. When nah, you say you said belief. something, I'm gonna forget. Oh, I promise you. I, y'all went so long that I forgot and remembered oh, it again. Boy. Question, please, brother. Mighty up, please. please. <laughs> You're like a Buddhist monk right there. Please, I come in peace with gifts and offerings. <laughs> hey, hey Wuja, that's why you can't you can't cut me off. After okay, let me ask you, Jabu, this question because I, I'm about to I'm about to cut him off. I asked him a question when I was trying to respond to what you saying. Jabu jumped in and cut me off, and now okay. I'm back. This oh. gonna take now. My oh. question ain't gonna make no sense. Go ahead. Okay, so Jabu, wouldn't you say the belief that all humans are Africans is a perspective? If we had to put it within. If we have to choose either or, isn't that a perspective, a one perspective? It's not aspective, right? No, I would say the opposite. That that's very aspective, because because what you're doing How is, is that aspective. Okay, remember remember what aspective is. Aspective is taking individual parts, okay, 
and and representing them what they are individually if regardless of, of the relationship to, to those other parts and then putting to putting them together into one expression and so when we say all of humanity is african that's exactly what we're doing we're taking independent genetic populations cultural social things and putting them into one expression that matches with with logic and consistency that the fact that the human genome or everybody on the planet's dna can ultimately trace back to africa so if if i had to label it perspective or aspect that i would say that statement would be more aspective than than um perspective perspective is to um from your vantage point say that that i am uh jewish and and this is it and then everything else is related to me being a jew and then i can choose okay i'm higher or better than the next thing or the next thing or whatever the case is so remember aspect that they take the important point important parts of everything and show those most important parts as one and that's and that's what that's what's in the in the art when you see kai gimney like i said you see his his back his, his right shoulder everything the the scepter the staff everything all it all that one representation knowing that it wasn't like that in real life so in real life everybody's not african but but right. ultimately and fundamentally ultimately and fundamentally so we are that the diversity of people is less important than where they originated from no 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 the diversity of people is what creates the distinctions remember in the african mind you had a unity and a multiplicity that were equally valid and important so the diversity among the unity both are important the unity is that we're all homo sapiens sapiens and we all or have the same origin the diversity okay. the diversity is the fact that we have migrated and developed different mutations that cause us to adapt to natural pressures and then we have genetic pools that got cut off from other genetic pools that became isolated to where to where you know we see these dis distinctions rise or bubble up to the surface that we call phenotypes and people look different and and then we got the culture aspect and all that good stuff all right so Stop. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm yeah. going to ask another question. Come back to that. Wait. All right. Back to you, Naya. You made the statement <laughs> that science is right. Science does not presuppose it's right. Not at all. That would be religion. Science presupposes that as of that particular moment, based off of the available data, right, they have an understanding of said subject. Thus, they create scientific theories. Right? Scientific theories can be overturned. This proves that they don't think they're right. You know what I'm saying? They're just okay. offering up explanations on empirical data. Okay. Right? And if, if they're found to be wrong, right, based off the data, they'll change it. Okay? Now, Wuja, you said something I fucking forgot because I'm 51 years old and y'all gotta let me get in when I want to get in. <laughs> Shit. I, I know what it was. I, I know what it was. I know. I, I know what it was. It was. What? Uh, you were going to tell me when you were going to sign up for comedic yoga. Um, <laughs> Been the arm twisted like that. <laughs> Relax. Back here, your chest stick out, your back there at the same time. So. Um, hey, but real, real quick, I I I had put in the chat uh, for people to um, ask questions. So so as you as you build and talk. I'm going to pay attention to the questions and I, I'm just going to read right. a couple of them, just a few right. of them. I'm going to put this article in here. It's going to surprise y'all. Right, but when 
when I was talking about the science being right, I would I should have been more specific and said that science has a methodology. The methodology that they use, I feel, is a great way to figure out things. But it's only one aspect of of our human experience. Like art is also very educational. Like Wuja, we prove like we don't have to always push science, science, science. You know, we can also look at other things such as culture and art as um, valid measurements to evaluating people and their psychologies and coming up with solutions. Hmm. I got a question. Uh, first of all, the, the word Africa comes from a Berber tribe that lived in North Africa, the Afrique tribe, right? That's one of the origins. You can you can read this in um, Asahotep's book, The Bacala Tribe of North America. And he talks about the Afrik tribe, all right? You can also look at, and this is an interesting reference. They see how you get this part right. They came from Timbuktu, am I saying that right? From here to Tim, Timbuktu. Uh, they were they were in um they were more they were up northern they were up a little further than that to the north of of Timbuktu and no no I said no no you're missing it it was a book called that came from Timbuktu oh okay oh I got that book about, downstairs <laughs> yeah we talk about the far tribe too with the origin oh let me go get that I didn't know they had that in there yeah and so and I'll get the page for you and so basically the Romans. Right, taking a African tribe, took their name and applied it to North Africa, one small province of Rome. So it's not a European word, right? Because Romans, the Romans ain't Europeans, right? But it is a Roman, it's a Roman declaration, meaning the Romans took an African tribe, North African tribe, and applied that to uh, um, one province. Like for instance, where Leo Africanus, people say, yeah, it came from the European Leo Africanus. First of all, Leo, Leo he, he ain't no European. All right? You wouldn't call him a European, right? All right? But you have a Roman naming uh, uh, technique here going on. So when Leo, Roman general, right, defeated Hannibal, right? In these wars, they have to get the name of the wars. What's the wars called, Abuja? The uh, man, they fought. They fought. They fought against the Carthaginians, right? Hannibal and them. They called. They call these these series of wars a particular name. I'm forgetting, right? Punic. But huh? Is it Punic Wars? That the Punic, Punic Wars, yes. Wars. Punic Wars, right? And when uh, this, this this particular general, it was time for someone to go against Hannibal, right? And this particular general had had been alongside his father when his father had had been defeated by Hannibal. So he had kind of, as a young boy, he had watched Hannibal destroy other generals. And he watched Hannibal defeat his father, right? So no Roman general wanted to fight against Hannibal. But this particular guy, as he grew up and became a general himself, right, when it was time to fight Hannibal again, right, he he volunteered to say, I'll fight Hannibal, because he had studied the way Hannibal had fought. So when he fought against Hannibal, he used a lot of African fighting techniques to defeat Hannibal. And when he defeated Hannibal, the roaming naming technique is to name yourself after your enemies. And so since he defeated Hannibal the African, right, he was named Leo 
Afrikaners, letting, letting all his people know that he, did, he had defeated Hannibal the African. You can find this in a book called um, uh, um, Rome, uh, Rome for Idiots. Yep, I believe that's the title of it. You know, one of them little books? Yep, Roman History for Idiots. Fine book. So <laughs> I like that title. And once again, Chief, Chief Broken Feather Holiday, you need to get that book, Roman for Idiots. See? Gotcha. All right? So here, let me put this article in here real quick. Real fast. I'm putting in the chat. I'm putting in the thing. This is an excellent right. article right here. And so as we go back and forth over the term, when we talk about Africa and Africa, this and that, right? Um, and it's funny that people that we're calling Europeans actually have one mutations that that are African. How do we how do we deal with that, Sister? Now you don't answer that yet, though. Oh, you trying to start some stuff now? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's wild. So we come to this. It's called New Gene Variants Reveal the Evolution of Human Skin Color. Wait, wait where'd you put the um, link? I'm sorry. I put it in the group. Okay, hold on. Give me a second to no, uh, pull it up. Not the group. I put it in our chat, and then I'm going to put it in the group here for everybody. Okay, so so um, can we give the audience kind of like a, some context to this? Because you're going backwards. So you're saying essentially that because um um africanas was named after the free people that somehow that means that what i didn't understand that context you got to clarify that you know is that, that is a it's a it's a north african tribe it's their name it's not a it's not a european name it's a north okay, african so you're tribe just clarifying that part of it okay okay yeah. that's what i'm saying so no matter what even if white people use it they got it from African people. That's my point. Cause that I just want to clarify that's not my argument in terms of the you know Afri the name Africa. I'm talking about not only the name but also the context of it as well. No, that was Chief Holiday question, not you. You just threw yourself yeah, in that. But I'm saying that, that's what I was gonna say. I was just gonna clarify for everybody that that Unc was addressing some a question on the chat. So so we, we should address some questions, but but you can go ahead on this article. I, I'm sharing it now. Uh, so if you had something to go over, I'll just follow you with uh, what you're talking about. All right, now I'm coming here and I talked about mutations and non-Africans. And it's funny that non-Africans use African mutations. Yeah, you know I mean, to give them certain qualities that we think is strictly European. That's the funny part to me. So it's wild. So watch this. Most pe people associate Africans with dark skin. But different groups of people in Africa have almost every skin color on the planet. Keyword there, almost. From the deepest black in the Dinka of South Sudan, right, to the Beji in, in, the, in the sand of South Africa. Now, researchers have discovered a handful of new gene variants responsible for the palette of tones, okay? Goes on to say, uh, watch this, the study published online this week in Science traces the evolution of these genes and how they traveled around the world. While the dark skin color of some Pacific Islanders can be traced to Africa, okay, gene variants from Eurasia 
also seem to have made their way back to Africa. Watch this. And surprisingly, some of the mutations responsible for lighter skin in Europeans turned out to have an ancient African origin. Huh. This is really a landmark study of skin color. Diversity, says geneticist Greg Barsh of the, the Hudson Alpha Institute of, Bio, of, of Biotechnology in Huntsville, Alabama. Researchers agree that the early Australopithecines ancestors of Africa, of Africa probably had light skin beneath their pelts. If you share, if you shave a chimpanzee, its skin is light, says the evolutionary geneticist, Sarah Tifkoff of the University of Pennsylvania, the lead authority on a, on a new study. If you have body hair, you don't need dark skin to protect you from the ultraviolet radiation. Until recently, researchers assumed that after human ancestors shared body, body hair, sometime between 2 million years ago, they quickly evolved dark skin to protect them from skin cancer and other harmful effects of UVA radiation. Then when the rumor, then when humans migrated out of Africa, they headed to far north, they evolved lighter skin as an adaptation to limited sunlight. All right, and y'all can read the article, pale skin synthesizes more vitamin D when, when light uh, is scared, scarce. Say previous researchers on skin color genes fit, fit that picture. From example, for example, the uh, deep pigmentation gene called SLC245A5 linked to pale skin swept through uh, European populations in the past 6,000 years. But uh, Tissoff, Tissoff's team found the story of skin, skin color evolution isn't so black and white. Uh, her team, watch this now, this is speak to you, Naya, including African researchers. So we got African researchers, right? So I don't want to kind of always give signs to white people like that, right? And I don't want to always think it's kind of expressing their politics, right? Because if African researchers are expressing white people's politics, then that's their damn fault, right? African researchers used a light meter to measure skin reflections in 2000. 92 people in Ethiopia, Tanzania, and, and Botswana. They found the darkest skin in the Nile of Saharan pastoralist population in Eastern Africa, such as the, 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 Mur, the, Mur, the, the Mercy and the Sumara, and the lightest skin in the sand in South Africa, as well as many shades in between, as in the Agua people of Ethiopia. It say at the same time, they collected blood samples from genetic studies. They, they sequenced more than 4 million single nucleotide polymers, that's called SNPs, SNP, SNPs, uh, places where a single letter of the genetic code variants across the genome of 1,570 of these Africans. They found four key areas of, of the genome where specific SNPs uh, uh, correlated with skin color. The first surprise was that SLC245 
which swept Europe, is also common in East Africa. Let me repeat this again. The first surprise was that SLC 245A5, no, SLC 24A5, which swept Europe, is also common in East Africa, found in as many as half the members of some Ethiopian groups. Well, that's a startling revelation. Let me keep going. The variants arose 30,000 years ago <laughs> and was probably brought to Eastern Africa by people migrating from the Middle East. Turgoff says, but though many East Africans have this gene, they don't have white skin, probably because it is just one of the several genes that shape their skin color. So now we start to see that there's more than just one gene that shapes skin color. Now, here's a very interesting part of this article right here. It says the team also found variants of two neighboring genes, HERC2 and OCA2. Watch this. Which are associated with light skin, eyes, and hair in Europeans, but arose in Africa. These variants are ancient and common in light-skinned sand people. The team proposed that the variants arose in Africa as early as one million years ago and spread later to European and Asia. Many of these genes variants that cause light-skinned Europeans have their origins in Africa. Yeah, well, there you go. So now we need to really figure that out since I just threw a monkey wrench in the whole daggone conversation. So the question, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So the question is this. How in the hell is non-Africans using African genes that, that mutate the light skin? I find that to be very, very interesting. So that All right. I just All want right, to put that you. in there. Thank you. That is good. Okay, Bujabu, could you please share my article so we can clear the air a little bit because we want to make sure that okay. we are all on the same page okay <laughs> okay where, where'd you put your link in the um okay. squad messenger okay give me a second so earlier i'm glad you brought that up it doesn't really matter you know the diversity because all the genes that are present in non-africans are now then present in um in africans as well so i think that's a great point but in order for us to really understand this argument we have to know three things we have to know the definition of race what an african is right and how the concept develops so here what i have is a statement from the american association of physical anthropologists okay and so this is the statement from them on the biological aspects of race. So it was printed in 1996 in American Journal of Physical Anthropology, volume 101. So as scientists who study human evolution and variation, we believe that we have the obligation to share with our scientists and the general public on our current understanding of the structure of human variation from a biological perspective. Popular conceptualizations of race are derived from the 19th and 20th century scientific formulations. And in my introduction, I basically told you the idea of the African, the Asian, 
the European, the Native American. These are conceptualizations that were formed in the early 1900s. So scientists today are telling you they are obligated to give you the truth about the reality of race and whether or not it's biologically meaningful. So they go on to say that these old racial categories, so they said these old racial categories, including the term African, right, were based on extremely, okay, I'm gonna call you back, based on extremely, vis, okay, based on externally visible traits, primarily skin color, features of the face and the shape and size of the head and body and the underlying skeleton. They were often imbued with non-biological attributes based on social constructions of race. So remember when we're using the term race, African, when we're using the term Asian and European, we're using the social construction that was recently developed. Okay, so recently we're saying about the 1900, the people who left out of Africa, they left 75, maybe 30 to 40,000 years ago, and they were homo sapiens. And so the, the scientists, the anthropologists go on to say basically such, wait, wait, these are old racial categories based on external features. Then they said, um, these categories of race are rooted in scientific traditions of the 19th century and even earlier physiological, what is that? Philosophical, I can't even say it right. <laughs> traditions such as presumed philosophical. that these, what is it? Philo philosophical. Okay, I need my glasses. Philosophical, sorry. Traits can measure all other traits. Such notions have often been used to support racist doctrines yet old racial concepts persist as social conventions that foster institutional discriminations the expression of prejudice may or may not undermine undermine material well-being but it does involve the mistreatment of people and thus is often in a psychologically distressing and socially damaging way scientists should try to keep the results of their research from being used in a biased way that would start that would serve discriminatory ends. So this answers um, a question about how science sometimes can be political. The American anthropologists who are scientists, they even made that point that science is very political. Rick Kittles, who was on our show, made that point that it's very political. And scientific racism was very political. So there's no need to, to think that for some reason, um, scientific racism has stopped just because we feel that we are a little smarter. So basically they go on and they say the position. So they have um, six positions. So the first position that they have is all humans living today belong to a single species, homo sapien sapiens, and share a common descent. Although there are differences of opinion regarding how and where different human groups diverge or fuse to form new ones from a common ancestral group, all living populations in each of the Earth's geographical areas have evolved from that ancestral group. So, so take heed to this because I want you guys to hear that scientists says that all living be beings today believe, belong to a single group called Homo sapiens sapiens. They didn't say a single group called the African. They didn't say a single group called the Egyptians or the South Africans, they said a single group called the Homo sapiens. 
that was that's the true scientific if you want to be scientific that's the true scientific way to say that there's only one race and that um that the human family started in africa is to bring us together and call us what we are which is homo sapiens sapiens and africa is the geographical continent in which we had we developed the diversity so where am I at? So point two, biological differences between human beings reflect both hereditary factors and the influence of natural and social environments. So biological differences, I want you to listen to that. They said the biological differences between humans, so the biological difference between us are reflected in natural and social environments. So what they're saying is the difference between what we would call an African and an Asian is the social and natural environment. So they call them Asians because they went through a certain evolutionary experience while in Asia. And that's very important. What you do is when you call everyone Africans, what you're basically saying is that everyone went through the same process in Africa under the same social and natural environmental pressures, which is not the case. Nah, so, that ain't why I say that, baby. That I'm not saying you, I'm not saying oh. you, I'm just saying I'm talking to the to the to the choir right now. Oh. So then point number three is there's a great genetic diversity within all human populations. So again, scientists are using these, these beautiful words, diversity among all humans, pure races in a sense of genetically homogeneous populations do not exist, right? So pure races do not exist. So that talks to the fundamentally African claim because there's no such thing as a fundamental African. The only race that exists is Homo sapien and the African is a type of Homo sapien. The Asian is a type of Homo sapien. The European is then a type of Homo sapien and then the Native American and then the Aboriginal Australia. So these are different types of Homo sapiens who went out of you the continent that. of Africa through that. social and natural consequence, environmental pressures developed into an African or developed into an Asian. So you can't just minimize people and put us in a box and say everybody is African. They said, they that. They said that in that paper. <laughs> can I finish my point? You read uh, it. Oh, hold on. Uh, Naya, Naya, can I, can Did I, say I that? wait, but Naya, can I Did interject something? You added that. <laughs> But can I, I want to interject something real, really quick. Uh, Go back and read that line again very quick. We say a type of African. Where that say? <laughs> well, we're, we're on number three. Uh, uh, so, Naya, I want to, I just want to say, yeah, number man, three. Man, they don't say that, man. <laughs> no, but listen, uh, Naya, what we have to, what we have to kind of oh, make sure my, it's clear. Can I get that? I'm going to find. Oh, no, it's right my. here. I'm, I got it on the screen. It's number three. Number um, three. But I, I want to say, I want to say that. We have to make sure that we, when we, nope, uh, you know, I don't want to confuse people. No one is saying that all hey, humans don't say that, Woo, you been are African. Right now, Let no, I'm not even talking oh. about what, what, what we should read. Really? I'm saying, that's how you trying well, to I did, point, I did make a point. Wait, wait. I did make a, I'm saying, I'm saying all human, uh, like we don't say, nobody says, or if anybody said they're wrong, all human beings are not African. But all human beings are fundamentally African. And I'm going to show you where they say it at right here. When they say, number one, all human beings living today, all humans living today 
belong to a single species, Homo sapiens, and share a common descent. And so that's the same statement said using different words. All right. human beings are fundamentally African. Why? Because Homo sapiens sapiens, as you said, originate in the geographical continent we call Africa today. So we have to remember to use the word fundamentally if we're going to say it that way. We can't just okay. say all humans are are African because then it defies what you read in number three where it says this great genetic diversity, the beautiful words you said, within all humans, <laughs> pure races in a sense of genetically hom homogeneous populations do not exist in the human species today, nor is there any evidence that they have ever existed in the past. So you, and you were saying this speaks to that fundamentally African, but I say it doesn't. Because fundamentally African is not saying that. Fundamentally African is, is talking about origin. That's where the word fundamental is. Fundamental is, is the, the base. Fundamental is like something that is the bottom or the base of something. So at, at the base of humanity is a common ancestor that came out of where? Africa. That's it. All right. So in conclusion, in the arbor. I'm not finished. I can't finish my point. Yeah. Okay. We're, you at number four, right? How you gonna say in conclusion? <laughs> no, I was saying no, no, I wasn't stop. I was finishing the conclusion of the article I was reading. Okay, so you want to jump in before I finish my points? Okay, that's so where you at? You're number four, right? I'm uh, trying to yeah, try keep it on the screen. It say the study adds to establish to establish research. Where, where you undercutting at? old notion of race? Where you at? A, I'm at the bottom of the article that I put in there. Did you got the bottom of it? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sharing what she what she had for uh, right yeah, now. Yeah, she can keep that there. That's cool. Okay. This is two lines, three lines. The study adds to establish research and undercutting the old notion of race. See, you can't use skin color to classify humans. I'm gonna say this again. You can't use skin color to classify humans any more than can any more than you can use other complex trait like height. Tindolf says. There is no, there is so much diversity in Africans that there is no such thing as an African race. What? Say that again. Read that again. Read that again. Uh -oh. I'm going to say there <laughs> is so much diversity in Africans yeah. that there is no such thing as an African race. Mm, mm, mm. I should. Right. I can just drop the mic and leave after that. I don't right. got to say no more. Right. So long as you know that Unk Unk never used the word African to classify race. No, I did. <laughs> I usually classify our origin. <laughs> but see, that has to be. That has to listen, Unk. What you're saying. See, that has to be emphasized and overemphasized because if we yeah, don't, yeah. if we don't make those small uh, uh, highlights, then it'd be mm -hmm. misconstrued. That's how I come out. I keep hammering the word fundamental and ultimate. Everybody knows what those words mean, but for some reason, when when we talk about genetics, man, it's like people people don't even hear the hear the just, just like the monkey thing. Like we could yep. say we don't come from monkeys, but for some reason, that word don't the word don't just don't even register in people's heads. <laughs> like all of a sudden, do not just don't exist in the vocabulary right. and anymore. It, and it, I think it's a different argument with the with this because there's so many people in the community that are confused about what is an African who is an African are we black are we white does it exist does it exist so I think that we need to have conversations like this so we can you know find a common ground 
and, and moving forward because one of the important aspects of being African is being able to identify who you are and who you are not. Yes. And so, you know, within the scientific community, they may posture that we are all African in one voice. And then as you can see in this article, the uh, anthropologists who actually study the culture and the people say that, you know, it really doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. The concept of African, not saying that the continent of Africa is not valid, a valid name or anything. I'm just saying that um, African people um, generally have a, a specific migration pattern in history and have um, their genes are expressed because they are in a certain ecological system. So the people also of Asia, their genes are then expressed because of the different ecological system and so forth and so on. So, you know, we don't, I don't feel that it's beneficial for us in the self-definition to say that we are all African as of today, but I do agree that we are fundamentally homo sapiens. <laughs> so that's where I kind of, my point of agreement starts. <laughs> but you know, let me, add, let me put this on the table now that, that, that you all, both of you all said that, right? Since since color cannot be used to establish race, you know, especially biologically, then the question becomes or a good research question for everybody is, did the ancient or historical populations of people, did they distinguish themselves from one another based on skin color? And did they identify themselves or their countries or whatever based on the color of their skin? For example, People believe that the word Kemet uh, comes from a word meaning black, and it, it is referring to the skin color of the inhabitants of the kingdom of Kemet. So the research question would be, was that an African norm or a way or tradition or whatever for people to name themselves after their skin color? Because we just now said that biologically you can't do that. And then it and then when it was done, it was done by way of European ways to um as this article even said uh where was it at the top somewhere um i forgot where it says it says basically it was being used in a biased way etc uh, where was it old racial concepts persist as social conventions that foster inst institutional discriminations so did this stuff exist in ancient or historical times you know yes or no that that would be the question that people should really look into um and find out the answer you know, so I yeah, I know with y'all in the group in Amaraskwa, that's been a huge topic, the issue of the skin color. So I know that you study the culture. What what are what's your position on it? Can did ancient people, specifically ancient Egyptians, did they use color to show differences amongst the groups? Uh no. And since you are um in the field of psychology, <clears throat> I will say this that um ancient populations uh, as we do still to this day, we just don't focus on it intentionally. But ancient populations use colors as an ontological and taxonomic uh, uh, tool. In other words, they use colors to categorize things. Not that those particular things are those colors. They just use colors as categories. So like, for example, today, we'll, if, if you had to give a color to love, what color would you give it to? What, what color would you give it? Red. I would give it blue. Okay, well you're you're odd, <laughs> but but mo most people will will classify love under the color red. 
They would classify anger under the color red. They would classify lust, um, sensuality, all those kinds of things under red. Power, to be powerful, they would classify it under red. And then we would classify other things under the color blue, et cetera, et cetera. So we still do it to this very day. But the ancients, obviously, because they're older and they were, they were the ones that created these um, classifications, they did these different colors. So that's one on a psychological um, basis. But let me just um, show, show this again uh, real quick. And I'm going to, uh, and, and this is going to be it. Let me just uh, show this if I can. Now, here's a picture that I showed earlier of Kagemni of the 5th Dynasty and Khnumhotep of the 12th dynasty now this is the this is the question or research that people have to do you don't have to do much you don't have to you don't have to do much research at all just picture all of the ancient egyptian artifacts that you can that you can think of that has ever been found period and imagine if they were all in one building and you were able to look at all of the artifacts all of the artwork everything the question is what percentage or what did the ancient Egyptians, in terms of color, if, if that's an issue back then, what color did the ancient Egyptians themselves use to represent and communicate to the world that they were? And I want you to look at my picture here of Kagemni of the 5th Dynasty and Khnumhotep of the 12th. And that's a long time in between those two. And they were not depicted as black. And 99.9% .9 of all male uh, Egyptians in depictions were not black they were a reddish brown color as you see on my screen so so I'm just showing by saying it though that no the the uh, the the color thing did not exist back then at all and they had access to black black pigment mind you because you can see the hair of, of uh, Kagemni is black but his skin is not black now everybody didn't look like that color so this color was not a representation of, of specific uh, um, descriptions. It was a classification thing. The Egyptians, the Remich, or the Remich, were reddish brown. The people south of them, were they used darker pe pigments for those people. Not because they were those uh, dark people necessarily. It's because they use it as classification uh, things. Just like we have blue, the different blues. And, and the women were depicted a paler red or even yellow and we know that the women were not all yellow so so the answer is no it, it, it wasn't used that way um at all and so that that would be a false thing to to just like you know it would be trying to retrofit today's racial paradigm on an ancient reality that just did not exist they didn't do that yeah i agree with you on that and 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 so here's the question and we talked about this before right if you was in a land, right, where there wasn't any pale-skinned people, right, uh, before any invasions, right, and ain't nothing but black people, right, in different variant degrees, right, how could you name yourself black people? You know, everybody would get lost. The land of black people, like, where's that at? Everybody is black. You would get lost. You know what I'm saying? Like, why would you name yourself black when everybody is black? They be, be, there will be no need to name yourself black if everybody was black. Man, that ain't no sense. Then you would get lost. Where's that land at? Hey, everybody is down here, is up there where everybody's black. So we see that foreigners came in and put those uh, 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 colors on us like that. 
the land of the blacks. I know it's the land of the blacks because you ain't never seen black people before. So you named us that. No, we wouldn't name ourselves that. We would name our things after certain geography. That makes more sense where you wouldn't get lost. You know, the land of the boat. You know what I'm saying? Such, 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 or whatever. You know what I mean? So, you know, I, I find it to be very interesting, right? Um, that, um, you know, that the study shows, it's clear, that it doesn't even make sense to name yourself the black people. No, that is and, funny. That's crazy as hell. No, that's a very good point. And that's why I said uh, uh, the way that Africans name their things, they're called toponyms, place names, and they do not use the skin color of people to do that. That was, that was only foreigners, be they European or not, would identify with uh, the people and name after skin colors. And a good group of people that's good and known for doing that would be the Arab-speaking population. When they say uh, Balad es Sudan, they're talking about the people that were sub-Saharan African, uh, all the way sub-Saharan African were black or dark. And then it became the name of a, of a particular country, Sudan today, but they were talking about everybody sub-Saharan um, at first. And all these different names were named by people that were not uh, indigenous. The, the indigenous traditional way of people naming their country and, and locations were, like you said, by way of flora, fauna, or things in the natural environment. Because remember, back then they didn't have GPS systems. So in order to identify, it was about identity, uh, impersonal identity of your, of, your, uh, of your landscape and everything. So they, they, they named it after something that was unique and distinctive within their environment to be able to identify that when you get here, you'll be able to recognize that you are here. You know how you're in the mall and you look at the, uh, the directory in the mall and it says you are here. Well, that's how they did it. They had to name something. They had to name their place after something that's you, that can uniquely identify that you have arrived. And so they named things after rivers, mountains, different flowers that were prominent or different animals that, that were prominent in the area um, or whatever the case is. So that's how they did that. And the word Kemet simply means land that is fertile, the fertile land, not the land of black skinned people. Although, you know, we know that they're Africans and things like that, but that's not what it meant. So, you know. Uja. Uja. In the chat room, we got uh, Marcel Amenhotep. He said the Egyptians depicted themselves the same color as the Nubians. Um, li listen, anybody that, see, I, I, I know people keep saying that. And I, mm -hmm. will say, I will say this. I can show the person, this is why I say 99.9% .9 of the representations that are self-made by the Remish themselves, the scribes, were not black. And it's in one particular tomb yep. uh, or two tombs where, mm -hmm. where, where you're talking about uh, the Duat scene, where you're talking about four groups of, mm -hmm. of human people that are, that are um, de de depicted there. And mm -hmm. they are, um, are in the Duat. And so in this particular scene, you have the, the Ta-Nehisi, uh, group that look identical to the Remich group. That's the thing that everybody's talking about. People don't realize that that is isolated in one spot. But if yeah. you look at if you look at ninety nine point nine percent of all the artwork, all the artwork and all the depictions, they are not black. So when people say that they identify themselves um, uh, like the others, or they call them Nubians, but they're really uh, Ta Nehisi um, or Nehisi. 
Hesio. Um, that's the that's what they're talking about. So so people take this one instance and then exaggerate it and say, hey, they identified themselves like that. Well, then explain the ninety nine point nine percent where it's red. And in the literature, they say that that the rem the, even the name Remich uh, uh, um, is a pun on their cosmological origin being from the tears of Ra. And 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 check this out, because the people cosmologically say that they come from Ra. The tears of Ra, the emanations of Ra, um, the word Remi means to cry or to tear up, and they call themselves Remich, so they have that connection there. If you look at the artwork in any particular tomb or any instance, you will see that the, that the pigment used for the skin color is the same pigment used for the sun. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, there you have it. All right, you at Naya on the phone. Mm -hmm. Got you. <laughs> so yeah, so we got any more questions in the chat room? Okay, let me let me scroll down real quick. Uh, but I, I do want to say this: that the brother Asar Mutep has has uh, done an excellent job to um, to treat or uh, do a full treatment on that, and he has it in his upcoming book. So definitely be on the lookout for his book. It's going to be called uh, Illusion Volume Two where um, he's going to go uh, completely thoroughly explain um, a couple of, you know, the points that I just uh, brought up briefly, you know. Um, so be on the lookout for that um, sometime in the near future. So, but uh, you said these comments. All right. Now, we did have a couple of questions. I'm, I'm going to scroll back up. We got Friday Jones who asked the question, when and what type of mutation has to take place to make the diversity? What is the main dividing line or the major mutation or major mutation makes non-Africans. Is it the phenotypical mutation? Because that's recent. So any... any uh, Say it again. He says, uh, or asks, when and what type of mutation has to take place to make the diversity? What What is the main dividing line or major mutation that makes a person non-African? No, it ain't... No, I don't, no, that's not that. It's just geography. Yeah, that's what I would say. Well, I, I said it. I said this earlier. Maybe, maybe um, this answers his question. Is it the non-African versus African uh, divide division is based on where did the mutation take place geographically that that started a new line of common descent, and we would call that haplotype or haplogroups. And so, remember, the haplotype is a code that is a code for a mutation that's that's really all it is haplotypes are mutations and so a group of people that share the same mutation have a common ancestor and if that mutation occurred uh outside of africa then they would consider it non-african if it occurred on the continent of africa then they would consider um african so that's that's the gist of it and that's how you can generally um you know make that distinction so all you have to do is pull pull up a haplo um, group map where you know whether it's the male or the female line, um, and then just look where the haplo group uh, springs up, where the mutation occurs, and then that that will be your answer in terms of trying to say, okay, well, what genetic population is African versus non-African? 
Yeah, so they're using that term to distinguish where, where the mutation occurred at, man. Right. Why? They can show you where it occurred because you get isolated. Now you tell you that you get isolated uh, populations. Yeah. Uh, yeah, geographical locations because the anthropologists are responsible for studying those sites and the culture and what they were doing. So, and the soil. Um, so yeah, it's the ecological system as well. So African, the continents, basically. Uh, I'm, I'm just scrolling. So I'm trying to, uh, before we, before we end this, uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any questions here. Uncle, uh, you beat up. You, you beat somebody see. up on that computer. <laughs> no, I'm on. I'm talking to Ben. Keyboard Ninja. Oh, can you mute your mic? Cause, cause you, it, it sounds like you beating that keyboard up. Karate. <laughs> you beating that keyboard up, like one hey, finger. Man, I have a problem here, man. I have a problem. One finger typist. <laughs> Uncle's a two finger typist. <laughs> no, I'm not using all my fingers. No, it's sound. my home keys. Is y'all serious right now? No, it, I'm saying the way it sounds. You sound like you're on an old typewriter. Click. Cause I'm bop 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 bop. Y'all hating? Cause I know it my home. Sound like the, it sounds like a typewriter, though, for real. <laughs> right? Cause okay. I'm using my fingers. <laughs> but listen, crazy. okay. Here's a question. Y'all don't hate me. Hate the game. The game. <laughs> Let me just run through run through a couple of these questions. Uh, a question that keeps repeated, I guess, by Chief Holiday. You already answered it, Uncle. Which is which is Holiday, uh, man. what language is the word Africa in? Uh, what? No, you already answered it. Uh, what language is the word African? Asar Motep deals with in the Bakala of North America. I showed that book already. Um, okay, Friday Jones. Is there scientific proof hominids had fur? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you why. Here you go. <laughs> How do they know? Because humans have body lice. But there's two types of body lice, right? There's the head lice, you know what I'm saying? And the lice that occurred down here in your groin area. So the question is, how in the hell, if we didn't have hair, how did the lice get from here to up here? That's how they know we had hair. Bingo, any next, any more questions? <laughs> any more questions, God damn it. We put the article in there too. I'll give you the sign the journal on that one. Huh. All right, one second, let's see any questions. Uh, I'm trying to go through uh trying to skip the conversation part and get to the question 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 uh naya if you see any questions because i'm still scrolling um let's see America, okay they didn't always use the term african they just used negroid and three categories negroid congo uh mongoloid Caucasoid. okay that's that's them that's see people are having conversations I'm looking for the questions. And um well look, check this out. I hope that people um you know benefited from the stuff that we shared in the conversation, especially about uh comedic yoga. And I want to say this again for people who try to do sound bites and stuff. Um I'm not attacking comedic yoga. Um I think it's a beautiful system. And actually um I would love to have a conversation with a practitioner about what actually takes place in Kemet, and I can demonstrate things from the text on what was done, why it was done, when it was done, and things like that. Um, but I did want to express and clarify that those particular postures, which is a narrow focus that I had 
in my discussion are not historically um, postures at all. And I already went through that. So I just want to kind of reiterate that. I know it's a sensitive topic. Um, and, you know, people jumped on me for for uh, saying it because they assume that I'm, I'm attacking comedic yoga. But, you know, we can get into that. Um, that whole conversation about yoga, not the postures, but the, the other aspects of it. All right. I don't see any uh, any questions. OK, second Ra. OK, um, I have a serious question about someone. Dr. Layla Africa, does anyone else think he's kind of crazy or am I the only one? Everything I see of his, it sounds like he's just rambling. Okay, I can't um I can't answer that one. I answer it. Shit, I ain't scared. Yeah, I think a lot a lot I think a lot of his claims, over half are very pseudo. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, I don't know enough about. Um, yeah, I got a couple of his teach. books. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know. I'm looking at the questions. I don't see. Okay, it says Marcel Amenhotep, the Egyptians' comedic made the distinction of races on the wall. Uh, the brother Marcel Amenhotep, they did not make distinctions of races on the wall. Now, here's why I say what I say. And I say what I say very carefully. Uh, the concept of race today, what we have to be careful of is retroactively projecting our modern concepts of race and the conditionings that we have today and projecting it back in ancient times. We have to be very careful not to do that. They did not make distinction of races. They made distinctions of community and populations. There's a difference. And I and I and I and I hope that you understand that difference and that, that we can uh, um, word it differently. They did not make distinction between races. They made distinctions between uh, cultural representations. And remember, look up the legal definition of the word nationality. What is a person's nationality? A person's nationality is the expression that a person gives off based on their membership inside of a nation. So the birth of nationality or the recognition of nationality was done by the ancient Remich or in ancient Kemet, where where people uh, were observed how they behaved, the language they spoke, the 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 um, con tra traditions that they uh, practiced, and the manner in which they dressed. And because of those distinctions can be made between populations, they labeled people differently. But it wasn't our concept of race. So I want to make that clear. It wasn't our concept of race. And I think mm. I think Naya can appreciate that because I know Naya, you, you kind of go hard on uh, the culture aspect uh, and the distinctions and, instead of um, the racial aspect and how race is a social construct and, and all of that. Definitely. I do appreciate it. I think. You know, that's the next phase for us to study the culture um, because there's so many important um, learning opportunities like the ones you did today with the um, different art styles. That was really good because I never even noticed it until today. I'm like, wow. So there's so much to be learned from the culture. We just have to take the time and sit down and evaluate all the aspects of it so we can just be able to express it 
you know, without deflecting or minimizing other people and also kind of protecting our culture at the same time. So, yeah, very much appreciated. And Marcel Imhotep says the Egyptians depicted themselves the same color as Nubians. See, when people say that, that's an, a, a, a grossly over-exaggerated and uh, generalized statement because that's just not uh, the case. Um, the majority, and I say 99.9% of the Egyptian extant artifacts that you could find in museums, go to Egypt yourself, look on the walls everywhere, coffins everywhere, papyri everywhere, and you'll find that that uh, most of, of, of the depictions are reddish brown when it comes to the men. And when it comes to the women, they're in a pale uh, color and even yellow. All right. So we have to remember that we have to stop romanticizing things. You know, we, we, we get it now. You know, we get it. Back in the 70s, we, it was a big, huge push to to push back see sometimes sometimes when somebody's pushing ha have you ever um like arm wrestled if you if you arm wrestle somebody and 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 you engage in arm wrestling when you watch somebody arm wrestle when 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 there's no movement no movement means that both people are exerting the same amount of pressure the moment that one person exerts more pressure than the other then you see movement and somebody's going to lose or win and so what happens is when somebody exerts more pressure than you, you have to overcompensate that pressure to bring it back to straight to your fist being straight up. And so what happens is we overcompensate this pushback on, on white supremacy, racism, white supremacy. We overdo it. We, we push back, but we overdo it. And we want to call everything black, everything and everybody black. We want to make uh, Elvis Presley black, uh, King James black, uh, John Hansen black president you know uh and all this kind of stuff we overdo it and we got king, we can't do that king james <laughs> right that's what i'm saying they, they they we overdo it so we have to stop that we have to stop romanticizing things and and accurately uh uh give you know give descriptions accurately no the egyptians did not depict themselves with the pigment black the majority of of the egyptians or the rimage depicted themselves a reddish brown period that's it and and the occasions that you do see the deceased in black that's that's in a different context and that and that's of that calls for a whole nother conversation and it's rare mm. you know so because like for example i just i just give a quick example that uh mental hotep he's he's depicted as black but i can show you where he's depicted as reddish brown now we know a single person can be both so the context that he's that he's p depicted black it has it has a meaning for it not the meaning that he was that color uh just like everybody didn't look reddish brown these are ontological and taxonomic categories they, they use colors that way blues were set for a certain thing the yellows were for a certain thing the red and the black and then you have the green that's why even today green green is associated with what what growth vitality uh blue is associated with uh intellect and health that's why you know it, it ties into marketing advertising too that's why in a restaurant why why the why the why your place that you eat food is, is a certain size a certain shape and certain color you know the, these things have a psychological component but i don't see any more questions so uh you know i'm i'm, I'm you know i guess we are um we're done so y'all got anything else
I had one thing I can't find. I forgot what you talking. Damn. Oh, it's, getting, <laughs> it's getting late, boy. You're talking about Dr. Sabre. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Chief, Chief, man, Chief Broken Feather broke back, yo. He's just an antagonist, yo. He's just stupid. Oh, I, I, I skipped over his comments. Um, yeah, man. I, I like making him famous, though. He'll say, Mutation, can I get a date? Yeah, you can get a date on mutations. I told you mutations can be dated. Yeah. I was trying to find that, that article on lice and when we lost our hair. Um, you know, I hope people benefit from, you know, just sharing information and people look up look things up. Like I said, you know, um um, you know, the thing you know, what I had uh showed today, uh, for example, um, if you want to learn more about um what I spoke about. Um, I recommend for starters, there's, there's more more books than this, but for starters, these books are available. They're, they're not very expensive at all. Um, they're very good uh, books to read, to understand the principles of Egyptian art. And I, I'll, I'll say this, just like language has grammar and rules, we call grammar, art has rules and grammar. You know, you have to actually study it. And there's a canon. There's a reason why, like, uh, uh, Naya, you asked a good question. You know, did the, did the scribes do this? just to protect the the for the art's sake or did was there you know some kind of psychological component to it and it, there is both they canonized it so so that it would be uh, consistent and long lasting that's why i remember denial is a long river and so they kept the same styles now you could you could find small changes uh over time but they're so small that or they stretch out a long period of time that you can tell that it was definitely um a concentrated effort to make things uh similar and the same hmm. question yo they say why is you said depicted as green i say for vegetation what you say why is what depicted as green you see i said for vegetation oh see that's what i'm saying people have to understand um what the colors represented and what context because green is associated with growth expansion vitality Black is associated with uh, potency, uh, the ability, the, the potential to produce. Like out of blackness comes things. And so it's the, it's the fertility and the ability to produce. Because in, from, a, from a farmer's perspective, agriculturalist, uh, the darker the soil, the, uh, the blackness is rich. And so you can grow things. And so things come out of, you know, what is growth? Uh, a, plant, a seed is planted and something springs forth from it. So the green and black are used um, in that regard. Blues are used to show or to symbolize or refer to things that are expansive. Why? Because the sky is blue and the sky seems to never end. What else is blue? Water. Uh, uh, nice, clear uh, water is uh, a bluish uh, color and it's sometimes green. You have the great green, speaking about the Mediterranean. But they, when you look out in the ocean, the water seemed like it never ends. So blue became associated with, with things that are very, very big and expans expansive. This is why Amun, the deity Amun, is sometimes depicted as blue. Because Amun, as a, as a deity himself, is the one that he who no one knows his name. So he, he permeates everything. He is, that's why they call him the hidden one or the imperceivable one that permeates everything. So he is identified with blue.
Yeah. All right, here's another question. Uh, why is Osea named the perfect black one? For the same reason. They say Lord of the perfect black. Uh, it's for the same reason. So that can uh, now, be confirmed in the meta nature. Well, not, not, yes. Not only that, though. We have to remember that Wasir and the rest of the Neturu are not human beings in the first place. Facts. So if they're not human beings, asking me or anyone why this deity is this color or that color in a conversation where we're talking about human skin colors is, mm -hmm. ir is irrelevant. Good point. Because Neturu are not human beings and they're Good not, point. they shouldn't ever be taken as sentient flesh and blood human beings. They're not aliens. They're not human beings or anything of the of the sort. So these are these things have meanings. The different colors they have meanings. And so you have you have people that are referred to as um, um, different colors for different reasons. So we just have to we have to understand that. Got you. Got you completely. Well, all right, man. I don't, I don't, we don't want to run it up too long, man. We had, man, had a nice little chat room in there, man. Over fifty people. Our first show in a long time, man. You know, uh, this episode is brought to you by Abjuwear, man. That's A B D J U W E A R dot com, man. Check us out on Instagram at Abjuwear on Facebook. All right, man. Y'all can also come to the Black Dot Bookstore and Cultural Center on Main Street, man. Y'all can just Google that up, man. Right there, man. Uh, Black Dot Culture Center Bookstore, man. The home of the Amaral Squad, man. Shout out to my partner, um, Kazende, you know what I'm saying? President of Black Dot Bookstore, all right? So, man, look, check this out, y'all, man. Look, we appreciate y'all, man. Uh, appreciate the conversation. That's how we get down, man. Um, it's just important for us to continue to study and at any time, right, be ready to move off your position, you know what I'm saying, when presented with right knowledge. And so y'all know what the Amaral Squad does, man. We're going to be doing these shows regular. You know, we taught the pseudo-ship, right? We taught the holler-ship, and we taught the fool-o-ship. Complete foolery. So, you know, we back in full blast now, and it is what it is, man. Any closing remarks, Sister Naya? She might just be asleep. Might just be past her bedtime. Uh, it's late. It's late. How about you, Wuja? Any closing remarks, brother? Uh, nope. I, yeah, I just want to reiterate um, about the comedic yoga. Um, look into it. It's beneficial. Practice it. But just understand and know that the postures that are practiced are modern innovations and they're not historically accurate. That was my point, and I hope that everybody gets the point and are not offended by that, and it actually strengthens the practice because now it can stand on its own merit. Uh, and Uncle, I do have that uh, commercial queued up if you want to close with that uh, for the Abju. Uh, hey, is Batar human? Elevated to a nature? No. No. Batar is not a human. Nope. Batar is not a human. There you have it. Yeah, go ahead, man. Hit that commercial, man. I'm in Raw Squad out, man. Black African Power Family. I thought you said you had a cute guy.